All those who are holding tickets outside will get in as fast as they can. I'm speaking not to you, ladies and gentlemen. I'm speaking to the crowd on the outside who seem to be standing rather reluctant to come in, and we're going to start this very soon. Welcome back to Worthy. My name is John. And I'm Ben. And today on the 33rd episode of Worthy, we're talking about uh, gender roles. And Ben and I are having our first gender reveal party together. (laughs) I wasn't ready (laughs) for that. (laughs) (laughs) We're here to talk about The Apartment, a 1960 Best Picture winner. Talking about gender roles, it kind of goes hand in hand with a lot of Wilder's work in particular, Billy Wilder. And... We wanted to mention gender roles, authority, consent, basically before gender politics was really a thing. You know, it's the ni- 1960s. We're getting into free love, the hippie era. We're trying to expand more, you know, be as a man run society, expand more and, and to, to offer women more things in, in life and opportunities. So we wanted to just take a moment to open up this podcast, talk about some of the, the similarities maybe we've seen in other films and how the apartment expands on it. But a great way that we could expand on it here is reading Robert Ebert's review. This is Roger Ebert's review of The Apartment. And uh, he talks specifically about Shirley MacLaine's character, uh, Fran Kubelik. And he says, what is particularly good about Miss Kubelik is the way she doesn't make her a ditzy dame who falls for a smooth talker, but suggests a young woman who has been lied to before, who has a good heart, but finite, but finite patience who is prepared to make the necessary compromises to be the next Mrs. Sheldrake. The underlying seriousness of McLean's performance helps anchor the picture. It raises the stakes and steers it away from any tendency to become musical beds. And to me, and one of the great things that about Fran Kubelik's character, the Trudy McLean's performance is that she's not searching for romantic love. She's just searching for like a practical kind of love, like, uh, just a normal kind of relationship, a normal friendship, a normal bond. And that's what kind of haunts this character is that she doesn't have that in really any aspect of her life, which leads to what happens in the middle of the movie, which we will get to. So she is totally different from any of the female leads that we have seen before in a lot of these movies because she breaks so much conventional roles with, with gender. She has short hair. I know like short hair was sort of in back then, but she has like almost pixie-ish, boyish kind of hair. And you can tell, like, maybe that character had a moment where she was done with her long hair. She was done with, like, the stereotypical, I'm a woman, I have to look like this and keep up my looks thing. She So she doesn't fall into those typical roles, which makes her stand out even more within the movie. She definitely does. And I think we could look at other films kind of, like, leading up to this. You know, close to Best Picture winners, like, the, even the Broadway melody from the second Oscars, where we have a movie that we both, I think, can agree on hating. But it is a story about two women trying to exceed in a very competitive industry on Broadway. You know, it is showing a woman's perspective, but it's also very much male-driven. They're being told what to do. And then we kind of move forward a little bit in 1934 with It Happened One Night, where we, again, that's probably our first introduction for Best Pictures when it comes to gender politics and uh, the relationship between men and women and kind of exploring that a little bit. And then it wasn't really until Gone with the Wind in 1939 where we really open the door this is a a female driven film it she's our main character right in the center of it and she's a defiant strong powered woman moving forward then we have rebecca even the following year which is 
about not trusting women. I think you get into some politics there of uh, women kind of being looked down upon, not trusting their opinion or believing them uh, when they're trying to say something very serious like murder. Uh, and then even obviously it's it's an easy comparison to The Lost Weekend, which we have uh, another Weiler film as well. So it's easy kind of to compare it to when it comes to uh, talking about a social issue, trying to explore it deeply while also being funny and and, uh, and heartfelt in a way. So I think we've definitely like taken steps to get to this point. Uh, and we've definitely grown just as as we've seen throughout the years, we've, we're growing and learning more. We're kind of trying to honor women's point of views and really expand that. And I think the apartment really is another step forward. It, it's something, it's really cheeky in the way it does it. And I think this is just Weiler and, and just how talented he is. And it's trying to present stereotypes like what you're used to, like a woman fawning after a man. He's He's got the power in the relationship. But what he does is trick you. He knows what your expectations are. And this is something I don't think we've really seen in a best picture yet. He knows what your expectations are, what you're looking for, how this romance will go. And he's kind of flipping that on your head. And he's making you think and, and question where whether this could be or how this could change based on what we've seen in the past, which is just women fawning over a man, no objection, even if he treats them poorly. So it's really interesting and, and it's a lot bigger than just that we go into like workplace and and even how men treat other men when it comes to uh workplace policies and stuff like that but yeah is there anything else you want to kind of hit on specifically ben when it comes to like gender roles and, and gender politics and again we're two men talking about this so yeah. it's a much bigger topic than just us here and, and especially in film right i think like the the biggest thing is is that twist that wilder puts into the script with Jack Lemmon's character, C.C. Baxter, because he's a vi- he is a victim of male dominance in the movie. He is abused and taken advantage of by the men. And he does use that to his own advantage, but the men use this to achieve sex, which is what much of the issues with uh, these misogynistic gender roles that have been in Hollywood and still are in Hollywood. And basically, these men just use Baxter to have this secret life to sleep with other women and they use it because they know they can step on him. They know they, and they know they can abuse him and he just takes it because he's figures, well, that's just like part of the system almost, which again is a critique on gender roles. It's a critique on misogyny. It's a critique on American capitalism and, and corporate work environments and just how wild it can, it can get. I mean, it, they show like a crazy office party in the movie and, um, I watched this movie um, recently with uh, with family and they were just like, oh, my God, like this is what like a 1960s office was like. And it's almost reminiscent <laughs> of like the Wolf of Wall Street. But it is what happened sure. in corporate America where men were just sleazeballs and taking advantage and doing whatever they could to women in the office because they had this sense of power, this sense of dominance over them. And this movie really does critique that Wilder, uh, you know, reading and researching about this movie he was really against that. He really want, wanted to make a point of emphasis in the script that to challenge that, to say like, this isn't right. This isn't good. And, uh, for 1960, it's pretty remarkable and it's very like not, it's very out of left field to talk about at the time and which is great. Um, and I think that sets up the sixties and the rest of movies moving forward because of how like fringe it is with some of the, the, the details and, and storylines they add into this movie it, it's fascinating and uh 
um, we're, we're just going to have to get into it, John. So why don't I ask you that question, which is, is the apartment worthy of the Best Picture Award of 1960? The Apartment. A Manhattan insurance clerk tries to rise in his company by letting its executives use his apartment for sexual misconduct. But complications and a romance of his own ensue. C.C. Bud Baxter is a lonely office worker at an insurance corporation in New York City. To climb the corporate ladder, he allows four company managers to take turns regularly borrowing his Upper West Side apartment for their illicit love affairs. Bud meticulously juggles the booking schedule, but the steady stream of women in and out convinces his neighbors that he is a playboy, bringing home someone else every night. Bud solicits glowing performance reviews from the four managers and submits them to the personnel director, Jeff Sheldrake, who then promises to promote him. But Sheldrake also demands use of the apartment for his own affairs, beginning that night. As compensation for this short notice, he gives Baxter two theater tickets for that evening. Bud asks his secret crush, Fran Kublik, an elevator operator in the office building, to join him. She agrees, but first meets up with a former fling, who turns out to be Sheldrake. When Sheldrake dissuades her from breaking up with him, promising to divorce his wife, they head to Bud's apartment as Bud waits, stood up outside the theater. Later at the company's rowdy Christmas party, Sheldrake's secretary, Miss Olson, tells Fran that her boss has had affairs of other female employees, including herself. Later, at Bud's apartment, Fran confronts Sheldrake. He professes genuine love for her, but then takes off, heading back to his suburban family as usual. Bud, having realized that Fran is the woman Sheldrake has been taking to his apartment, lets himself be picked up by a married lady at a local bar. However, when they arrive at his apartment, he discovers Fran passed out on his bed from an apparent suicidal overdose of his sleeping pills. He sends away the woman from the bar and enlists Dr. Dreyfus, a medical doctor living in the next-door apartment, to revive Fran. Bud intentionally makes Dreyfus believe that he was the cause of the incident. Dreyfus scolds Bud for philandering and advises him to be a mensch. While Fran spends two days recuperating in the apartment, Bud cares for her, and a bond develops between them, especially after he confesses to his own suicide attempt over acquitted feelings for a woman who now sends him fruitcake every Christmas. During a game of gin rummy, Fran says she has always suffered bad luck in her love life. As Bud prepares a romantic dinner, one of the managers arrives for his weekly appointment. Bud persuades him and his companion to leave, but the manager recognizes Fran and informs his colleagues. Later, confronted by Fran's brother-in-law, Carl Machuska, who is looking for her, the jealous manager directs Carl to Bud's apartment. There, Bud deflects the brothers-in-law anger over Fran's wayward behavior by once again assuming all responsibility. Carl punches him, but then Fran kisses Bud for protecting her. After she leaves, he smiles and tells the doctor, it didn't hurt a bit. When Sheldrake learns that Miss Olsen tipped off Fran about his affairs, he fires her, but she retaliates by spilling all to Sheldrake's wife, who promptly throws her husband out. Sheldrake believes that this situation just makes it easier to pursue his affair with Fran. Having promoted Bud to an even higher position, which also gives him a key to the executive washroom, Sheldrake expects Bud to loan out his apartment yet again. Bud gives him back the washroom key instead, proclaiming that he has decided to become a mensch and quits the firm. 
That night at the New Year's Eve party, Sheldrake indignantly tells Fran about Bud quitting. Realizing she is in love with Bud, Fran abandons Sheldrake and runs to the apartment. At the door, she hears an apparent gunshot. Fearing that Bud has attempted suicide again, she frantically pounds on the door. Bud opens up, holding a bottle of champagne whose cork he had just popped, celebrating his plan to start anew. As the two settle down to resume their gin rummy card game, Fran tells Bud that she is now free. When he asks about Sheldrake, she replies, well, we'll send him a fruitcake every Christmas. Bud declares his love for Fran, and she happily hands him the cards and affectionately tells him to shut up and deal. The Apartment was directed by Billy Wilder. Written by Billy Wilder and I.A.L. Diamond. Produced by Billy Wilder and associate producers I.A.L. Diamond and Duane Harrison. Music by Adolf Deutsch. Cinematography by Joseph Lachelle. Art direction by Alexandre Troner. Set decoration by Edward G. Boyle. The Apartment stars Jack Lemon as C.C. Baxter. Shirley MacLaine as Fran Kubelik. Fred McMurray as Jeff D. Sheldrake. Ray Walston as Joe Dobish. Jack Crucian as Dr. Dreyfus. David Lewis as Al Kirkaby. And Hope Holiday as Mrs. Margie McMcDougal. So the apartment. I think that the actually the best way to start off this conversation, John, is the opening monologue. On November 1st, 1959, the population of New York City was 8,042,783. If you laid all these people end to end, figuring an average height of 5 feet 6 and a half inches, they would reach from Times Square to the outskirts of Karachi, Pakistan. I know facts like this because I've worked for an insurance company, Consolidated Life of New York. We're one of the top five companies in the country. Our home office has 31,259 employees, which is more than the entire population of uh, Natchez, Mississippi. I work on the 19th floor, Ordinary Policy Department, Premium Accounting Division, Section W, desk number 861. My name is C.C. Baxter, C for Calvin, C for Clifford, however most people call me Bud. I've been with Consolidated for three years and ten months, and my take-home pay is $94.70 a week. So Wilder starts off this movie with a voiceover and actually to kind of go off on a very quick tangent uh, already. Um, have you ever heard of a book that Cameron Crowe wrote, John, called Conversations with Wilder? No, never heard of that. So Cameron Crowe did uh, a book where he interviewed Billy Wilder. And I actually wish I, I learned about it only today uh, on the day of recording. So I wish I had picked it up beforehand to read it. But uh, Billy Wilder. Uh, he had like ten rules of of um, of screenwriting, and and there's a there's some really good ones. I think we might hit on a few, but number eight was in doing voiceovers, be careful not to describe what audiences already sees, add to what they're seeing. And I think this voiceover at the beginning that Jack Lemon Lemon's character does, C.C. Baxter, really do, it doesn't address like what's going on, but it 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 adds it it contextualizes everything that you're seeing. So what you're seeing is the New York City skyline. You're seeing everybody pile into this office. You're seeing everybody work. And what it does is it adds to like this rat race kind of feeling that this ever, that everything is open and wide, that, that numbers just keep going and going up, that there's no, like, like it's, it's a huge expanse. And I think that one of the, the beautiful things that Wilder does in this movie is he creates that sense of that the world is so huge that no matter what you're looking at, everything is still going on in the background the the 
the screen almost falls off like at time we see the big that like shot of the office where it looks like it's going on and on forever where the shot of Baxter sitting on the park bench where the park bench goes on and on forever adds to the idea that there's so much going on in the world but what the story is it narrows it down to these two people to uh to Lemons and McLean's characters and what they're going through and to me that's such like a beautiful thing because it it's like a compliment to the writing it's a compliment to the directing that you can create such a world that feels so lived in I know it's New York City but it feels so lived in it feels so like there like there's that there is like history to the office there's history to the characters but what we're focusing on is the here and now and it's really only like a few days I know it takes place over a few weeks but it's really only focused on like five days worth like if I had to guess of actual like action and actual like story time and I just think that this voiceover is a real it's so fascinating it's so interesting to start the movie off with this because it's like almost a prologue and it's like okay the world is happening there's so like everything that happens in the world there's all these issues and all these problems and bam here's cc baxter here's his story yeah it also comments a lot on his personality though his mind is the way he the way he kind of thinks and sees the world he tells us that he's you know an insurance agent he's very numbers driven and, and statistics driven and he's very focused on really just being a good employee working really hard he stays later to avoid traffic that's just for his convenience but it's really because he wants to to show how hard he's working and that he's working very very hard you know and you're right i love the opening shots of introducing us to the city we have like a plane or a uh, i don't even know if helicopters were around yet in 1960 but a really impressive shot of, of the city and I loved the way the huge apartment is kind of built up. It's big, looming. It's shot from down below, so you see really how many endless floors there are. And obviously the beautiful design of the interior, how they go on and on, like you described. Uh, it's it's really amazing, and it's it's so just kind of everyday life. It's so introducing us to this world in such a simple way. It reminds me a little bit of Marty in terms of uh, relating it to another Best Picture winner of just kind of, here's our guy, here's our world. He's uh, doing his job and here's our story kind of taking you into his life directly. Um, but yeah, I loved it. I think it's it's so well written in such a cheeky fun way and it sets the tone immediately for the film. Yeah, it does. And um, another quick tangent, like the Marty aspect. So I said during that episode uh, that like that was like like where our grandparents like like that was like the line of like grandparents Hollywood parents Hollywood and like and mm-hmm. my, my dad was born in 1960 so this is like his birth year so I gave it like a five-year like you know cushion because there's some some of our friends have like parents who were born a little bit earlier than, than like my dad but sure but like this does truly feel like like the last stop on that train like everybody got off at Marty but like if you were to get off like the ho- old Hollywood train like this is it and like honestly this movie feels like what looks like it should be an old hollywood movie but it's really a more modern tale and from everything that goes on after and it's not just the fact that it's the last like black and white until schindler's list to win but it's also just the way that it's shot and the way that the the characters are used it's so it's so like holds into that old hollywood's like roots but wilder is he's such a great director that he's able to like get out of that and he's able to like add to it and make it more modern for that time and and it still feels modern to today it, i mean i know all the old technology uh doesn't really translate but um but it, it just it, i i just love thinking about that way and then when we talk about you know you mentioned that baxter is a numbers guy he you know st- he's getting stats and numbers 
and he seems meticulous but then when you really think about like this story it's kind of like what happens when the moments when he's not being meticulous when he's not when he allows human aspects to enter his life and this is kind of what he's reacting to is like he's you know the feelings of love the feelings of loneliness the you know compassion that he wants to give to Kubalik. uh it's it, it's really fascinating because you're right because this does set up and it makes him seem like this such like to the numbers to the books kind of guy but he like breaks out of that shell because of what happens in his storyline yeah you're definitely right and it's interesting inter- and that's why i love wyla's writing so much and i see Di- iac's diamonds writing so much is because it keeps setting up setting us up for these expectations it's looking like this is a classic 50s hollywood film you know this kind of like suit white suit and uh, tie kind of film where we're inside this office and you kind of expect this film to be pretty slow but even from the opening dialogue you're getting this kind of witty sense of humor we've seen jack lemon to pop up i've talked about him a little bit uh with mr roberts but he just dominates this film him uh, just his his presence is like illuminating in this movie whether he's sad or lonely or depressed or whether he's cracking jokes or he's sick like throughout this film he is just alive and and so hilarious and so goofy that you really just can't take his your eyes off of him you know he's he's not a actor who you look at and you're like wow he's so handsome and stunning or or has this deep manly voice he's perfect for this for cc baxter he's kind of your average joe he looks like kind of your standard american and he's smaller he's more frail and what this kind of introduces us is right away to the opening of what this film is right ending the the whole paragraph on the only problem is i can't always get in when i want to already hooks you in as a viewer what do you like what do you mean the only problem is that you can't get in like that's not how apartments work like it immediately makes you question well, what does he mean by that and that's what this whole film constantly does it makes you think as the viewer where you know where you think it's going to go but it, it doesn't it, it changes and it makes you think a lot more about these characters whether what they say to another character is true or not you know where's the actual truth and that's what I, I loved about this film and I think it really comes down to how amazing the script is yeah I, I couldn't agree more like I, when I was getting people to rewatch the movie with me or even watch it like initially or just tell him about it. I was like, okay, this movie is about a man whose apartment is lent out to other men to have sex in it and he can't use the apartment. And I just didn't want to tell them more about it. Cause that really <laughs> is like the whole, the log line, the grand idea of it. And then when you put it in, like it, the genre of it is comedy, but in the film and like that's, that aspect lends itself to being a comedy that seems like such a comedic and situational like humor. But then this, it goes so much deeper. It becomes a drama. It becomes very serious that to call it like strictly a comedy, it doesn't really work for it. And I actually saw a video of Jack Lemon. He was like a much older man. I think he was, must've been like in his eighties, but he talks about, it, he's like that. He didn't never thought of it as a comedy. It shouldn't be classified as comedy and how we always put stuff into these boxes, but you kind of have to, and and but what that it gives a lot of credit for is to you know diamond and wilder's screenplay which is just so fantastic i mean you're right to use that line at the end of the monologue that the only problem is i can't get into my apartment it, it makes you wonder it makes you question there's this mystery you know you're, you're trying to figure out like what what is that's going on and what that is matched with is him walking back to his apartment but looking up and then it goes right into it and you see that 
there's an you know one of the executives from the office using it with uh, I, I think it was Sylvia is her name the, the phone operator, and oh man, it's just such a it's such a fascinating like sto- like idea like just that idea of like this guy's apartment can't be used because he lends it out for other people to ha- to have sex in it is so wild and you're like okay I'm I'm hooked in and again like, that's just huge credit to the screenplay itself. Yeah, you're definitely right. I think. You know, there are some logic questions where you think about these these managers, these people that are way above him, especially when it comes to Sheldrake, who's, you know, the real superior, the top dog in the company. You kind of question the logics of why would they really need an apartment? Like, couldn't they use a hotel? Like, but then I guess there's kind of like a, a track record then if you're cheating with someone and you go to a hotel and you kind of have a proof. Yeah, well, yeah, you have proof there. You know, anyone in the hotel could see you. The The people that work at the hotel could see you. So I guess that's kind of the logic and reasoning. That's not something I really rubbed in with, but that's like the one thing I thought of who's like, mm, that's kind of makes the whole plot a little questionable. But I love that you were talking about this movie and, and specifically what genre it falls into. And, you know, a lot of people call this the first American adultery comedy. Uh, you know, a movie that is uh, a lot about sex and relationships, but it's still really funny with a lot of heart. Um, but I thought it was really interesting that Billy Wilder himself described the movie as demonstrating the misuse of the American dream, where infidelity is a way of life. So it's like this inside look into what he calls the American dream and how that's so intertwined with sex and women and men kind of never being satisfied in a way. And it's it's so true. And I think that's what really great movies are is you can't really pinpoint it in one genre, at least for me. All the films that I like really, truly love, it, it's it's so co- they are complicated enough that they don't really fit in a single genre. Um, but, yeah, absolutely stunning. And, and what do you think about that definition of him calling it the misuse of the American dream where infidelity is a way of life? Yeah, I, I think that that's such a great line. And, and the way that I want to tie it that in is so the, the when i first watched this movie and then after the subsequent times of watching it the thing like the piece of media that feels the most like the closest to it is actually like mad men because mad men takes place in the corporate office in new york city where it's all about infidelity and, and it does it misuses the american dream where these men think that they're being these all-american men but really they're just like kind of sad sacks of shit you know and that's kind of what yep. most of the men are. I mean, we don't get really into the four the four executives that were using his apartment before Sheldrick was, but you can tell like the like they're all broken people, and like the idea that infidelity is like a way of life is that this idea of the human experience and and always wanting to search and know more, and, and so sexuality is a part of that human experience. And what and what really that then ties it into is the rest of this movie, and what we talked about a little bit in the cold open with Kubelik's character because yeah, she does have the sexual wants. She does want love and like the typical man loves a woman type of way for 1960 man can love men and women can love anyone can love anyone now. But back then that wasn't really a thing, but regardless the fact that Wilder said that, that, that infidelity is like a part of life and it's like the search for more. And, and that's what Kubelik wants. She wants something that's like, I just want a human connection. I want more. And like, Baxter, I don't think he wants sexual love. I mean, he he has it like at one point with uh, when he gets really drunk of that married woman. I know like what happens in the middle of the movie with Kubelik's like bot with her botched suicide attempt. But regardless, he like wasn't really searching for sex when he was drunk and when she was like propositioning him. 
in that bar he was kind of just like all right i'll go for it so he even he like doesn't need sex he just wants like human connection human compassion in his life so i think that's a great way that wilder um talks about the movie and and frames it for himself yeah you're absolutely right he he's a complex character right like a character who is has an internal battle and you see that kind of really directly and they do it in such a funny way like it just having one of the opening scenes after you know he gets kicked out uh, in the middle of the night so another manager can kind of come in and sleep with a woman he's stuck with the repercussions of that which is him being sick the next day you know sounding like a frog and I just thought him obviously his voice is hilarious it's it makes every scene that he does and every line that he delivers even more funny and I just absolutely love the scene where he's calling every single manager that he uh, <laughs> knows is scheduled to come into his apartment it's to so tell good. them that he has to kind of push back their time. It's, it's such a great scene. Going back to like Wilder's, like another one of his 10 screenwriting tips is develop a clean line of action for your leading character. So, and I think that it can be applied to multiple parts in a script, but for like this instance at the beginning of the movie, He's saying, Wilder is saying that all Baxter cares about is I just want to use the apartment for my own uh, enjoyment, for my own, you know, my my own quiet time, my alone time. And for Baxter, so he gets sick and all he wants to do is get home. And so, yeah, the motivation in that scene where he's calling all the executives and he's like, "Okay, can you do Wednesday? Can you do Friday? Can you do Thursday? And rearranging it is all just his motivation just so he can have time alone in his apartment just to feel better and again like the men abuse him he he is part of this system where he is going out of his way to just get one night in his apartment just so he can like feel better just so he can like get a slight edge over this 30,000 plus corporation you know so he can like have a job and, and move up in it and it, it's it you know it, so like the idea that like that Baxter has to like his motive is so simple is again such a great thing for the comedy aspect of it because it does create this hilarious scene there's a lot of great visuals and jack lemon just it nails it incredibly in this scene yeah i love his character so much he's this like goofy guy who's who just really can't catch a break and it's it becomes sad already at this point you're seeing just how bogged down he is with everything but you do see jack lemon and Bud's character, obviously, uh, kind of start to glow when he's in the elevator with Fran Kublik, who's played by Shirley MacLaine. And there's so much that we can say about Shirley MacLaine. I haven't seen too many films with her. This is maybe my first, honestly, unless I can't remember oh, her you, in you a are particular forgetting. role of mine. You are forgetting. She, I must um, be forgetting then. She was in Around the World in 80 Days, John, as... Um, oh, as the princess. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> wow as the, uh, she looks so different as the quote-unquote indian princess <laughs> wow yeah we can just act like that didn't happen yeah, this I, is the first time i've ever seen yeah her, we so. can yeah we can act like we never seen her before and we'll get to see her again in a performance <laughs> uh in the 80s with her in terms of endearment where she's older uh it's actually an academy award winning performance for her um so we will get to see her again and talk about her more but you're, but this like role for her is so perfect. It's so nuanced. It, it shares a lot of depth to her character. Like just their dialogue back and forth when when they are in the first elevator scene is really great. It's so sharp. And Bud is doing his thing where he's talking about you know how people in New York, the average New Yorker, gets two and a half colds a year, 
and she's like well i never get a cold and and he's like you know he's like oh i get about five of them and she talks about averages and stuff it's like so simple just like they're talking about averages and math but it's so cute and quirky and i get you're immediately like oh i want them to fall to get you know fall in love together and you have to wait so long in the movie for that to happen but this is like that initial spark that makes you like oh they're so cute together it's so witty and it feels so modern. I mean, her saying like, oh, you get sick five times a year or well, I get sick none. So I must be handing it off to you. You know, it's such a funny, quirky little like inside someone's life and like an, an idea that like is so common to think about. And maybe like you've heard your friend even say that as well. But it feels so modern. It feels like something that would come from like a, you know, like a Judd Apatow film from the, the <laughs> mid 2000s, like something that uh, some people might take that as a negative. But I, I'm saying it feels modern in that way where it feels like anyone could relate to this nowadays. And I feel like this out of a lot of movies that we have seen is very relatable. And even, for instance, I've watched a good amount of these movies with my girlfriend and or at least started to watch a good amount with my girlfriend. And there gets to a point where she just gets so bogged down. It's too slow. I mean, we're talking about pre 1960s Hollywood films it's not everyone's cup of tea and especially someone who's not you know dedicated to kind of going on this journey but this movie immediately took her in you know she got the description of who this guy is she sees his work life as soon as there's that that kind of hook line and sinker of wait what's going on in his apartment oh they're having oh okay she immediately was hooked she went to go brush her teeth she was like oh my god pause it it was the first time she's ever said we need to pause a movie while she like left the room (laughs) to do anything so I think it shows a lot that that someone who is is not uh, not as knowledgeable or hasn't seen as many older films who is so hooked into it and and wants to know what's happening. It's such a simple story, but it's a story that like anyone can relate to and anyone can kind of feel like they've been bogged down by corporate power and uh, just the workplace in general. So I just found this movie to be so relatable so personable and then obviously it's so well acted and written it's like what what is not to love but I wanted to talk about uh Shirley MacLaine and you know I think she does so much for this movie she expands just who Fran is as a character I think uh if this was another actor or performer it may have come off as she was being too ditzy she wasn't like witty and kind of independent enough with a lot of her free thinking and uh, I think this could have gone a lot of different ways, even with the great writing and, and dialogue that we have here. I feel like someone could have portrayed her as as more weak than she is. I mean, we're talking about a character who later on tries to commit suicide, which is such a big topic that we'll get to and something that's so dark and, and kind of surprising for 1960. And she does it with a level of grace, a level of sadness and depression that you can kind of see her relate to in Bud. But she also does it in a way that's yet still you feel for her. You feel and understand every reason why she's doing it. And you feel for the position that she's in. I I just feel like she really portrays that so well. And she uses humor as like a defense, right? And I I absolutely love that. There there are some really great one-liners that Wilder gives her in the movie. So one part, um, Baxter, he has a mirror that she had left there that that he noticed because he gave it back to Sheldrake regardless. I don't need to get into those details, but the mirror is broken. And she says, I like it that way. It makes me look the way I feel. She has another line that says, why do people have to love people anyways? And then another line, I was jinxed from the word go. The first time I was ever kissed was in a cemetery. So yeah, she is so beaten down by life. She is so you know disenfranchised almost. And 
it's it's so cynical it's such a cynical way to look at the world and especially for a female lead to have these you know issues and like when you think about the lost weekend you know the main character dealt with so much so much like hardship so much depression that he you know went to alcohol as his crutch and then to see this in a, in a female character though to that she goes to suicide as a resolution it's it's like heart-wrenching and, and it like i feel like it hits harder you know even more just because she she's so innocent looking which i think is like why they gave her a pixie haircut like you know why she's in like you know she's in a uniform as an elevator operator but she's referred to as a girl scout she's supposed to seem like younger and have this childish feel or feel to her but there's so much depth of like these deep and raw and just hard emotions that she's constantly feeling but yet she just beams happiness she seems to be very well put together until we realize like she just isn't she's so down on her luck in many aspects of her life yeah you're absolutely right and her relationship with uh fred mcmurray or, or sheldrick in the film is is a really interesting one and it was something that I was kind of hinting at a little bit earlier on, but their relationship and how he's so manipulative and he's telling her all these lies, but you know, you don't really know who he is from our point of view as the character uh, and our point of view from the audience. We're looking at him and can we believe any of the things he says? Is he telling Bud the truth? Is he telling her the truth? Uh, where does it really lie? And I found their relationship to be super compelling. And I love that you talked about, Mad Men earlier because you're exactly right like there is no way that I think his name is was it Weiner or Weiner whatever it is yeah Matt Weiner he Matt Weiner right unfortunate name but uh <laughs> it's there's not a chance that he you know doesn't love this movie and it wasn't heavily inspired by this and at the very least the production design the way the offices look it has to be definitely taken in and inspired uh Mad Men moving forward and it, I loved the design, and we talked a little bit about the camera work, but I absolutely loved the way Joseph Lachelle kind of has everything in frame, really wide-angle lenses showing this world and, and making it natural, but still haunting in a way, in an endless way that like you can't escape this office. Yeah, I really love the cinematography and knew when to kind of move and when to you know let, let everything work out. Yeah, it's actually fascinating you bring that up because I, I want to talk about this one little part of it is so you know apparently like Lachelle and Wilder were like at odds of each other over like how the film should look so Wilder wanted the wide feel but Lachelle he apparently he came from more of like a television background so he was used to doing like more close-ups like more intimate kind of feeling but this movie like pretty much avoids that and what's actually the most like dramatic like close-up and like cut is when Baxter showing off his bowler hat to uh, Fran so this is during the Christmas party scene. And so it's a very first, you know, the scene is like they're in the office. It's wide. You, it's a lot of depth. You see everybody partying in the background. And as soon as Baxter goes to put on the hat, it's just this cut. And it's a cut just right to his head. It's very, it's like almost an extreme close up. The background is blurred and you're just focused on him. And it, it seems like very iconic because it's just like one of those like Marilyn Monroe like turns where he's just like, well, how do I look? And then it cuts right to Fran, who's also in this extreme close-up. The background's blurred. It's just focused on her. And she's dealing with all these emotions because at that time, she had just been confronted by Miss Olsen that, 
you know, that, that Fran wasn't the only woman in the office that slept with Sheldrick. So the fact that like that Lachelle and Wilder were at odds with how the film should look and that Lachelle had this one moment and it actually worked perfectly for to use a close up because it, it blurred out everything that was happening in like this big world, this big party that's going on in the background. And it showed that like Fran is dealing with these tough emotions because she feels she's feeling extremely broken right now. And Baxter is at like he's almost peaking because he's like, oh, my God, I have Fran in my office. I'm like a little tipsy right now. Uh, he actually, hold, you know, he she asked him how many drinks he had. She, he says three, but Lemon holds up four fingers, which is such great physical comedy for him to use. And it, it's such a great moment to, you know, from all aspects, but to specifically use those extreme close up shots versus like the rest of the movie really adds to the emotions that's being conveyed in that moment. I really loved how it just takes its time and it, it knows when to, to kind of move in and show you the, the kind of interior thought that a character is having, especially when it comes to Bud. And I love the way that we see his apartment as well, the way we get to meet his neighbor and his, who's the doctor. And we <laughs> get the funny ongoing joke that everyone thinks it's Bud who's sleeping around, who's having multiple partners in a night. It, it creates a really funny dynamic. And it's just a, it's also a really beautiful apartment in general. It's like a small little New York apartment. It's, as as someone who lived in New York for five years, it's kind of painful to look at. You look at it and you're like, that is so gorgeous. And I'm blanking on the rent. What The $80. rent is so low. It's like $80. <laughs> there it is. There it is. Absolutely insane as someone oh who lived God. in New York. And especially over the past year or two and how much rent has gone up. And it's just uh, hilarious to even think about it in, in respect, looking back at it like that. Yeah, and, and Baxter is uh, pretty set up in, in that apartment. He has he has a kit. I mean, it's not like a huge kitchen, but he has a kitchen. He has a whole living room area, dining area. He's got, uh, you know, his bedroom is bad. Like, he has a lot of room for, like, what the space is. So he's, he's definitely pretty definitely. lucky that way. But to talk about the apartment uh, for a second, we kind of... This happened a little bit earlier in the film, but when he first gets back to the apartment uh, initially after that first night um, we get this really great reference and it's actually again like a really funny scene and the reference is to Grand Hotel uh, the fifth best picture winner and first off the scene starts where Baxter he has to just cook a frozen dinner he sits on the couch he turns on the TV he has like this like crazy remote control where it's like a box that yeah. sits like on the table so cool yeah yeah I, I just love old technology so it's like such a cool thing just to see that but he turns it on and it's just like uh, and like, I think again it adds to that idea of like the American dream but also American capitalism like taking over because he's like oh my god like he's like okay tonight we're gonna be showing Greta Garbo Wallace Beery uh John Barrymore uh Joan Crawford in Grand Hotel and he's like every name that they read off you to see him getting like closer and closer like in his seat, he's like, oh my God, okay. <laughs> I'm really interested in watching Grand Hotel right now while eating my dinner. And they're like, okay, a word from our sponsor. And it's he's just like, oh, okay, so I'll turn the channel. <laughs> One of the movies is uh, Stagecoach uh, that he turns to and he gets back and he's like, okay. And then they do the same thing again. And now for Greta Garbo, Wallace Beery, John, you know, John Barrymore, Joan Crawford. <laughs> and he's like, okay, okay, okay. And now for our secondary sponsor. And he just turns off the TV and it's so, and it's such like a funny scene. But again, it adds the idea of the American capitalism, American dream, just being like abused because you want art like Grand Hotel. I, I mean, we we like the movie a lot. I, I think I liked it a little bit more than you from what I remember in our discussion. But it's such like a great little like movie. And 
it's very artistic uh and the fact that it's so just like being essentially abused by american capitalism is just like exactly what wilder hates and i think like that's why he makes this joke that like we have these great movies we like we show it on this great technology like television but we just like bastardize it because of advertisements <laughs> and sponsorships yeah it's just surrounded by garbage and you're exactly right i love it plays so well into the plot and what they're kind of trying to talk about and discuss uh in general with the film but it's, it also kind of beats down our main character even more you know and i love that he's just holding on to a chicken leg and he's just chomping away at it and it's the physical humor of, of jack lemon the way he just like just lets go of it like are you kidding me another sponsor <laughs> yeah uh and i, I i've been uh, trying to read more scripts in general and trying to read out of uh some of the scripts that we can get access to for some of the best picture winners and i just I love the writing of the screenplay. It's absolutely amazing. And then the way that scene is written out, you know, he hears the, the next ad come up. He's pissed. And the description for the scene says, that does it. Bud turns the set off in disgust. The TV screen blacks out except for a small pinpoint of light in the center, which gradually fades away. And it's one of those things that's so specific, but when you see it on screen, you're like, that's exactly what's happening. That's exactly what happens is this beautiful little like flash of light from the TV that also just shows his complete like disgust with life and everything, his office life, the way his apartment's being controlled. It's such a small thing that tells you so much even more about the world and our character and and why he feels so trapped and he can't even enjoy a little bit of tv time and also it's just crazy to see like you said the remote is so cool it's this cool 60s design and and beautiful we don't get to see it in color but it's a beautiful little apartment uh just kind of ruined by all the advertisements on tv so i'm glad you brought that up that was such a great line that i wanted to talk about and and really kind of dive deep into I wanted to talk about, and I know you wanted to talk about Mensch, <laughs> and I don't know if you want to start by defining what your opinion is, maybe the Oxford Dictionary definition, and then kind of telling us if you have a uh, personal history. I think you've t- told me a little bit. You got a little uh, personal history when it comes to Mensch. Yeah, so it's a Yiddish term, and like the most literal the translation that you can make of it is a person of integrity and honor. Uh, Dreyfus in the movie says it's just being a human being to me like it's a very uh, the first time I actually ever heard the word mensch used was actually talked about my my step-grandfather and it was at like a Passover dinner and people in the family kept calling him a mensch actually I think they gave him a mug that said that he was such a mensch and really what that signified to me was being a good person by being a a person that others can rely on and it into and, and to me that that can be expanded on in many ways but wh- when i heard them when i saw it it, it felt like a, like a wise man like somebody that i like i'm in trouble or i have this issue i have this problem i would go to them a mensch to help me talk it out to help me understand to give me better perspective and so this word is used in the movie and one wilder is jewish himself he um, has an Austria-Hungarian background. That's where he came from. His actually his, I think I was reading if I get this right. His mother, his grandmother, and another relative were, were actually died in the Holocaust. And he actually got out of Berlin. Uh, he was actually in Berlin before he came to uh, the United States. So he has like a deep history with that. So I, you know, obviously him using the word "mensch" feels very like real and very like personal to him. So 
one it's great that he used it but i think it's that idea that like baxter has to come to terms with is that yeah he's this like to the numbers kind of guy yeah he's you know not he's not doing anything like horrific in life but he's also letting people step over him to go we'll get into the point later but he just tried to kill himself too because he feels so bogged down and not saying that suicide is like doesn't make you wise or doesn't make you a good person but i think what happens with with people who do feel that way who do feel such a depression who feel so lonely they they don't see perspective in their in the best way they don't feel like they like like to them like the world is so blurred that there's like this filter that's that's stopping you from realizing that you have that you do have it probably good in life that there is a good perspective to look at there is something to hold on to and so the idea of a mensch being used just to be a human being just to be decent in life is something that baxter has to come to terms with because of the issues that that's put before him so i i love that that just be a mensch like be be a human being is so key to the story and to baxter's like turning point um that it, i it, it's such a great use of the word so that's my little uh my little diatribe my little ted talk about mention why it's such a great use <laughs> of uh, in this movie and actually no my last thought my last thought about this and this ties into the screenplay which again such a great screenplay is that word wise the word wise um upon like my third viewing i realized how often it is used and i think that it, it's so purposeful and it adds it's very subtle i don't know if me i don't maybe you picked on it as well but the word wise is used throughout and i think it's has to do with the idea that being wise, being a mensch, being a good human is so critical to all these aspects that makes Baxter who he is by the end of the movie. Yeah, I mean, I, that was wonderful and, and well said. And I think it's it's important, this, the word mensch, the mention, of, the mention of mensch is very important in general for the film. And it brings up the question of like, who is a mensch by the end? Does Bud become a mensch because of his separation from his job and, and following his dream and following his love? And is Fran a mensch? And I love the way you described it as just being a person and being caring and kind of having life experience to kind of show other people and, and to just be kind of honest and a good person. And it's true. Literally everyone else surrounded, uh, everyone besides Fran and Bud are they're just surrounded by people that just are barely human. They're people that just want to kind of exploit other people to get gains, you know, whether they're the managers that Bud works with who simply just want to keep sleeping with people because they've already succeeded at, at their job. They can barely go any higher. There's not much more to even push for, to forwards. And that's all they've thought of as life, you know, get the better job, make more money, move higher up, just keep going and going. And not many people stop and ask themselves, am I happy? Why am I doing this? Like, why am I really putting myself out on the line just to help these people, you know, commit something that you aren't even really supportive of, you know, having these adulterous relationships and having them happen with really Bud's apartment and his wallet. I mean, he has to stock this house and supply the alcohol. He's spending a lot of money clearly on this apartment and making everyone happy. And this whole film is kind of without being really on the nose him questioning like why am I doing any of this why does any of this really matter uh, to my life does any of this really make me happy and I think that's the beauty of this movie and I think that's the beauty of, of Fran's character as well she constantly is questioning herself like why am I falling down this trap with these men like everyone all these men want me but it's clear they just want me 
to, to use me, to have sex with me. It's clearly that's the only thing they really want to come come support me with is just to, to support themselves. And I think that's executed so well with the script, the way that at first when we have uh, Sheldrake's character kind of speaking to Bud and he doesn't you don't really realize if, if he knows about the apartment or if he does know if he's going to be against it. And then you realize that he's just trying to use Bud like one of the other managers and he tells Bud about how you know like no way he would leave his wife there's no way that he would you know leave his wife to date a woman like like the elevator operator like that's below him but he'll lie to her face he'll say all these things so she'll sleep with him so he can get that little bit of like monetary gain Uh, you know it's it's disturbing in a way that like how is this movie still labeled as just a comedy because it's just not it's so well thought out and deep that it's hard just to like label this just simply as a comedy because it's talking about something that's so much bigger than than just being a funny romantic comedy you know and especially I think it's a good time to talk about Fran and and the way Shirley MacLaine's kind of execution of uh, the suicide scene I mean there's really no way to kind of uh, talk about it other than saying what it is she takes a bunch of I forget if they're painkillers. I think they're sleeping pills, they're right? Sleeping pills. Yeah, and and it's it's. I mean, I don't think we've really seen anything as, as dark and just directly facing these kind of big world issues and and, and emotional issues. Maybe since I don't know, we have like the best years of our lives is certainly a huge a huge one. But I don't really think anything really compares to it until The Lost Weekend as well. Those two films are like the first ones that come to mind when it comes to this like personal trauma and really trying to explore that. And obviously that's another Wilder film, so it makes perfect sense. But I just absolutely loved how they they cross this line. They take a movie that's been kind of screwball comedy up until this point, and then they show you what can happen you know this can be all fun and games and even you as the viewer that's what's so smart about this movie you as the viewer can be watching this and you're like yeah, this is a funny screwball comedy like this is we're getting goofs and gaffs some sexual things going on he's spanking her in the butt like we're getting f- these funny comedic things up until this moment where the rug is pulled out from under us and you're like wow these these events are funny, but they have consequences. It's almost like you feel bad as the audience. You're like, I shouldn't have been laughing at how Fran has been mistreated and misused. You know, I don't, did you feel that same way? Did that come across that same way for you, Ben? Yeah, I I definitely did. Um, I think that it's, it, I get like, you kind of hit the nail on the head. Like it's such a, like a wild, like subject matter to be talking about. And like, we really do get so in depth with suicide and, and and talking about it we do so there are some other movies that like we have talked about that do mention it notably it was made fun of in Gigi. so that was totally the oh like God. like the misuse I forgot. yeah yeah so there, <laughs> there's that marty and mark like marty admits that he there are times where he thought yep. about just being sucked away yep. into the subway tracks and like you're right like yeah. and that feels very like that movie feels very in vain of the apartment but that one it's such like a hap like at the end you feel just so happy you know like where that love is going to go and i think the apartment ends where it's a little bit mysterious of like okay where can this actually go um another one that like sort of talks about suicide but doesn't really expand upon it is like in hamlet hamlet has that whole monologue where uh you know where he's sitting on top of the tower and 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 it's like one of the most beautiful soliloquies but 
it's about suicide and he's talking about you know it's the to be or not to be uh scene and like so there there's been talks about with suicide um but there's never really been like the sole focus on like here's a suicide attempt here's someone dealing with like the repercussions and like how to keep them alive type of thing that it's so in your face and it and that i think is why it feels so out of left field so like visceral and i think that's what makes it so fascinating for us to see it and to you know watch it and to talk about it is because it hasn't been to the extent like the other movies have like referenced it or slightly talked about it a little bit you know yeah and you know i think it really comes down to one the writing is fantastic shirley mclean's performance is is subtle and soft and and really sad in that way but it's just it's not melodramatic. This could have been so over the top. She could have been like bawling her eyes out, breaking things, and in like a furious rage as she tries to end her life. But it's not. She just like basically realizes she's stuck. She can't get out of this endless cycle. The one person that she thinks like truly loves her and, and truly could be her, you know, final person in life is just completely lying to her, is lying to everyone around her. And he has a serial history of, of adultery and, and sleeping with people that even she knows, you know, even friends that she has in the same office building. She knows now that they have had long relationship with, with him and how they have been told the same things by Shell Drake and how he's just this has been a long laundry list of, of women that he's been through. And it's it's something that could have just been written so poorly. It could have been so blunt. It could have been over dramatic her saying like well if no man if i can't have him then i don't want no man or some dramatic just awful line that right. could have just been written to kind of over explain how she's feeling it's like no we see we see how all of this is broken down and it makes it so hard to watch as the viewer as well because you're like bud is right there you're in bud's apartment you don't even realize you're in bud's apartment <laughs> but he loves you he's there like i just want him to be there for you yeah you know? like it's a it's a movie where you're like so invested in these characters and the story that you're like screaming at the screen like no please god <laughs> no you know what i mean yeah well it's it's good that you brought up the idea like that she doesn't know that it's bud's apartment is because i think that adds to uh, like the somewhat situational comedy of it and again like the really smart writing that wilder and diamond set up in this movie is that she She's in this random person's apartment, at least to her perspective. She's in this random person's apartment, finds this person's sleeping pills, and she's just going to take it because she doesn't give a fuck. Like, that's how low she is at that point of her life where she's willing to do that. But the the comedy aspect, the, the slight situational humor is the fact that it's Bud's apartment that, like, and so when she does get, you know, she, like, starts to wake up after Dreyfus slaps her like three times is she's like what are you doing here to Baxter like she has no idea but he saves her which I think like is one of those good qualities that Baxter has is that he covers for her in in the suicide attempt that he makes it seem like that he was the one to cause it because he doesn't want to honestly I don't know why he doesn't want it. I don't know why he doesn't want to say like oh well it was some other guy I guess because it was even more taboo. But obviously at this point, Dreyfus, I don't think he really gave a shit. He was just like, well, I got to save this woman and keep her alive. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think at that point he's got that, uh, the, the doctor's honor, you know, like I just 
if it doesn't matter if they're a criminal, prostitute, whatever it is, like they're injured, I need to help them, you know, like doesn't matter what the scenario is, I'm here to help, I'll help, you know. Yeah, exactly. So all right, so we've been talking about the suicide attempt. So Kubalik, she takes the pills and what happens is that Baxter, he's one, he's just pissed drunk because of the Christmas party. He storms out after realizing that it it was Fran that was that was sleeping with Sheldrick, so he's just like really heartbroken. So he comes back with uh, with Mrs. McDougal, uh, <laughs> I think that's her name. <laughs> such a funny character. I know. Dude. She, such a funny. She's so character. funny. She talks about her husband being like in Havana, and there's talks about Castro. So it's wilder to again being so like modern and being like there's all these world issues going on. And everything, it's so expansive, but it's still so centered on Baxter's story. But regardless, they get back to the apartment. And then when he, like, goes into the bedroom and he sees her laying in bed, he starts, like, berating her, like, while she's passed out because of these sleeping pills. And he's like, I want you out of here. Like, I had a thing for you, but, you know, you kind of treat me like this and blah, 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 blah. And then he, like, realizes, like, oh, shit, she's she took all these pills and like one can you imagine being like so drunk and fucked up that you walk into like into that situation like maybe not that that specific situation but such a situation where oh my god i gotta go get a doctor and then have to deal with that well i couldn't even imagine that you know no that's like everyone's worst case scenario yeah, like absolutely worst case scenario and and so then uh, well then becomes like the really just dramatic turn after a very light but like serious first like hour of the movie is when Dreyfus starts trying to wake her up. He like gets in to make a pot of coffee uh, to give to her. And when I watch this movie, and when Dreyfus starts slapping, you know, Fran to wake her up, like people I was watching it were like so shocked, and I was just like, they had to. He had to do it. Like, and and actually looking up about it, it seemed like that's what doctors had to do in these situations was to literally just like beat them awake. So that they, <laughs> you know, it sounds so like crude and so like, why the fuck would you do that? But you kind of have to wake them up somehow. Um, so then yeah. it becomes this like whole, you know, scene where Dreyfus and, and Baxter are keeping her awake and keeping her alive. They have her marching back and forth across the apartment um, to to keep her up. And it's so sad because your heart like really does start to pick up. You're you're like, OK, I hope she really does survive and she does and you know Dreyfus he get he that's when he gives that line to Baxter because they put her to bed finally and he's leaving to you know saying that she'll be you know good over the weekend but he says be a mensch be a good person because he thinks that like that Baxter was the cause of this which in a way he sort of was because he let Sheldrick use his apartment but regardless what then is ensues is like this two-day like getaway for the two of them where like it's actually references a lost weekend <laughs> again so another best picture mm-hmm. reference and a wilder reference yep and they they really do start to bond they you know baxter's really he really like i don't know if he like hams it up to her but he's like so kind and and she even comments she's like why can't i fall in love with like nice guys like you type of stuff and mm. what then is revealed which to me was like the even like bigger shock and twist is that Baxter admits his own botched suicide attempt. Uh, he tried to kill himself because he was in love with a, like his best friend's wife, uh, but I was that wasn't gonna work. And he said, like, he had a gun. He said, and I again, like, I hate saying like it's so funny, but the way that Lemon 
like his physical like acting is so good and it's so funny because it's funny it's so funny it it, it is so basically what he's doing he's saying like well how would you shoot yourself would you shoot yourself here pointing his head or here pointing to his heart (laughs) uh but then he says well i pointed it at my you know my knee by accident and that's where he shot himself and like that's funny and it's kind of like that wake up moment where again like this is another wake up moment for with him saving fran where he realizes okay i want to live i want life when he shoots himself in the knee and then this moment he's like okay well, i want to do more of my life i want to be with this woman fran i want to not feel so lonely and i think like that's what kind of drives him to like really show such love and such compassion towards her beyond just that she tried to kill herself in his apartment it's a, in a great example of just how great the script is because he's saying such a he's telling us such, such a dramatic story. We're learning something about our character that we had no idea that there was any hints of. Like we see this guy who's who's down on his luck, but he just seems perseverance. He's he perseverant. He's going to keep pushing forward. He's going to keep succeeding in one way or another. He doesn't seem like a guy that would even get to that point. And to hear that, it changes our whole view of this character. But you're exactly right. The way Jack Lemon is kind of like describing where he should kill himself. Like, I don't know what I'm doing. Like, I'm so like lost. I don't even know how to actually kill myself. Like, it's such a bizarre and goofy thing that's still heartfelt. And I think a perfect example of that is the way he describes the woman that uh, he he kind of lost saying how that she sends him a, a fruitcake every Christmas. Like, it's a small little goofy, tiny little bit like that that just is carried on throughout the film like these lines that kind of get carried on like the lines of not showing you my appendix scar don't tell anyone in the office because then they'll know that uh, you've seen me without clothes on like it's like these repeating lines that are just so funny and and charming that just makes you fall in love with these characters and it makes you care for them uh, in in such a deep emotional way you just need to see how their their lives are are kind of taken forward and and whether they're happy or not so i think we've talked a lot about the apartment ben is there any other scene that you want to mention or hit on uh i i'm glad that you talked about uh mentioning another best picture winner because correct me if i'm wrong this is the first time we've ever had a best picture winner mention or reference another best picture winner yeah it, it is and um something i will be you know in the later in the next like 60 movies that we talk about it it comes up a little bit more and more uh actually Mm -hmm. and um it's something that i think is like almost formulaic for like some of these best picture winners or for a movie to like win best picture is to reference another one and yeah this is the first time it does that um but in terms of like talking i mean there's so much things i i I do want to talk about um one thing i do want to talk about is again these like tips that wilder gives for screenwriting so his number nine tip is the event that occurs at the second act curtain triggers the end of the movie. So basically saying that like you need something in the middle of the movie to really grab people's attention. And that's what happens is he grabs your attention with this suicide thing. And then actually is number two, which kind of more applies to the beginning, but it applies here, which is grab him by the throat and never let him go. I mean, that's what they do this entire movie is from the get go. He's just like, all right, this is the scenario. This is what's happening. And, and it keeps going and going and going and it builds this train uh, of momentum. And, you know, after the the whole suicide thing and, and after, you know, Fran is, is good, um, you know, one, Bud gets punched in the face by her brother-in-law, Carl. Uh, and, you know, he has a line, it doesn't hurt a bit because she kisses him on the cheek before she leaves. Uh, Dreyfus also helps him there again. Um, and then the movie just... 
I mean, they're, they're, the ending is so good and, and it's so well paced and it keeps going and going and going, which I, I think is like his last tip for the like good screenwriting is to quicken up the pace and, and really let it go. But then don't leave him hanging at the end or Definitely. don't or don't leave him hanging around. So basically how I want to wrap this up is, is like after that. Baxter, he's like, okay, like I couldn't really get her at the end, and he start and he climbs the ladder again because Sheldrick gives him an even more higher position in the office, mm-hmm. and when and then that all gets broken down because in Sheldrick's storyline, his secretary tells his wife, and then he gets kicked out of the house, and he thinks he's gonna marry Fran, blah 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 blah. But anyway, so he basically at the end of the movie, he's he says to Baxter, like, give me your key like again because i want to use it and he's just like no you're not gonna you're not gonna have this control over me anymore like you're not gonna have it and he and sheldrick thinks that he gets it from him at the end but really it's the executive washroom key and he quits the job he does he becomes a human being he stops being that numbers guy and he's just like you know what i don't want to work this job i don't want to be in this you know this like you know american corporate cycle where I'm just running on the hamster wheel and what do I get out of it? Like the key to the executive washroom and you guys still abuse your power by taking over my apartment and he's just done and he like doesn't care anymore. And like, that's his whole thing is when he's packing up the apartment and talking to Fran is like, he doesn't know what he's going to do. He just knows that he's just gonna go on with his life. And, and what the beautiful thing about that is like, cause she runs, you know, back to Baxter at the end um, because you know, she's so, overwhelmed by the idea when she hears from Sheldrick that Baxter quit because of her and you know really you know stuck it to them because she realizes that like Baxter is a good person and he is the right person for her to be with and that's not necessarily again like love it's about companionship and 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 being a good person and one okay the other like situational comedy is and it's repetitive because uh, she runs into the apartment so happy and she hears what she thinks is a gunshot because they actually show the gun that Baxter had used and it's actually him popping up a champagne a champagne bottle. He th- I love that. Yeah, yeah, and and it's a callback from a little bit earlier in the film where he, over that weekend when she's recovering, he goes out to get groceries, but then his landlady thinks that he left the gas on, so he thinks she tried to kill herself again, but she really she just left it on because <laughs> she thought it was one. She thought it was a stovetop that just automatically lit. But it wasn't you had to light it yourself again another 1960s like ingenuity and stuff you had to use you had to actually light the stove yourself uh, but regardless so you know they're like oh my god like you're not dead she's so happy to see him and then they play gin rummy and he like gives off so much love and affection to her that he adores her he's admitting his love for her and she gives that great line at the end you know shut up and deal and that's because you know one she's not ready i think to say that she loves him and she really does just want like a normal kind of companionship and and just having that uh like i guess it's platonic but it also is like her defense going up where she's uh yeah she she uses like such crude such like you know shut up and deal like you know because she just doesn't want to talk about that she just wants to put her walls up and be open to him in other ways and and the love aspect will come naturally and like the movie ending on that note it's so like sweet and cute and funny and it and it gives us this idea like okay the world is still going to keep going and they will find their way they will find you know their paths in life and 
it's such a great way to end the movie so i know i just talked for like probably five minutes straight right there but there, there's so much i think that we can talk <laughs> about this movie that i like don't even care about the oscars at this point for this for this year because all i care about is like this movie won and like there are no, there are a lot of great movies that come out that year but this movie feels so it's such like an it's like i don't want to say it's a perfect movie but it's like such a great movie and and it is a movie like now having looked on it and research and, and we're now watching it a few times that I wish the first time I did watch it I did cherish it more because when I initially watched it I was like oh this is a great movie but I didn't think much of it but now rewatching it I'm like this is such a brilliant movie there's so much into it the screen like the screenplay is so good apparently uh the WGA the Writers Guild of America rate as the 15th best screenplay all time uh which is wild uh that that one they even did that they even made a list like that uh, so the, yeah, the script the script is really strong, and I think if you read just the script itself, you would feel like you're reading a great American novel. You know. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's it's unbelievable. I think there's so many things to talk about about this movie because every scene is important. It's imperative to these characters. It, they keep pushing the story story forward, and yeah, I, I absolutely love the end. I think it takes what uh, it happened one night did almost 25 years ago and elevates it makes it more nuanced makes it more natural makes it feel real more real than ever i, I mean i we loved it happened one night we we had a great time with that movie i really love that episode and i love that film but it has a fantasy element to it i kind of uh you can't fully buy these characters it still is kind of i don't, I don't want to say bogged down because that's too harsh of a term but it it, it has the hollywood uh, kind of like nuance all written all over it or the lack of nuance I should say right yeah while this movie it's so endearing and kind to its characters and the way you described it at the end of a Fran being like just deal and and it shows and tells us a lot about her character you know she's she's very interested in bud but let's see how it plays out basically that line infers yeah yeah we'll just see where this goes like i really like you as a person let's see how this goes why am i rushing in and thinking that every person i'm gonna date should be the one and you know that's reading a lot into the scene i think some people could look at this and be in that's her being like i'm in love with you basically that that's what that line implies but i think it it could imply so many different things i think it's really up to the viewer rather um maybe it's just simply just some fun gag about the game but obviously we know how well written this is we know that every line is more detailed and has more meaning to it than actually really comes off and i think wilder had has always had that uh, the same way he loves to introduce us to the world with this voiceover and introducing our characters with voiceover he also loves finishing a movie with a really memorable line you know we have a uh, a great moment at the end with her just telling him straight, let's continue this game. You know, like it's, it's a great like memorable line that you'll always like forever remember. Uh, like one of his other movies for some like it hot. Uh, there's a classic last line, which is nobody's perfect kind of like hitting on the themes of that movie and, <laughs> and exploring it. And I, I just, this movie made me want to watch every single Wilder movie. And as like a film lover and, and someone who just wants to watch as many movies as possible before they die, it just made me feel bad. It made me feel bad. Like, I'm like, why the, f why haven't I watched more of this man's movies? Like <laughs> I, I love this so much. Like, what am I doing with my life? It was one of those movies where it's almost like the gates opened up 
and you're just like, why, why, what am I doing? Like, why haven't I watched every single Wilder film? And I think that's that's our next podcast, yeah. <laughs> Wilder podcast. Yeah. you know, <laughs> Wilder or not Wilder? Yeah, it's uh, yeah, Wilder not. Yeah, yeah, and I think it, he has a a filmography that I think is really it's not like daunting. It's he had he directed twenty five movies, and he has he has a lot of uh, a lot of great memorable lines. Actually, one you didn't mention was from Sunset Boulevard, which is. I'm ready for my close up now, Mr. DeMille. Like that of is course. like that is so classic and so iconic for Hollywood. He's really good at at hitting it. And that, and that goes again to what I was saying before about his uh, screenwriting tips. I might as well just read the whole list. I feel like John you're going to love a lot of these. So, number 1 is number 1 is the audience is fickle. So, essentially saying that like you know, trends and, and what and what you think the audience wants like you know, it's, you'll never be successful with, with nailing that, you know, so just kind of write what you want to write. Like the audience will be attracted to it or not, regardless of, of how you do it or what, or what it is you're writing. Number two, which I said before, which is grab him by the throat and never let him go. Number three, which I mentioned also, which is develop a clean line of action for your leading character. Number four, know where you're going. I think this movie knows exactly where it's going and knows like he he has a clear line. He he knows where his characters are going to be by the end of the film. It's just about getting him there. Number five is the more subtle and elegant you are in hiding your plot points, the better you are as a writer. So I think that the idea is that there's, and I, it goes back to the idea of genre and how this gets listed as a comedy, but it's not really a comedy is that there's not that many like different types of like movies and storylines that you can really tell. So it's more about, well, how can you, how do you approach it? How do you make it good? Like a good musical way of, of doing this is like there's seven notes and there are so many different kind of types of rhythms. So it's about adapting the notes to the rhythms and making it unique to that. Number six is if you have a problem with the third act, the real problem is in the first act, which I think like a lot of people should, <laughs> should really adhere to, especially nowadays. Uh, number seven, uh, and this is a reference to Ernest Lubitsch. So he, Ernest Lubitsch was a, a German film director that came to Hollywood that actually Wilder. And before he worked with IL Dom diamond, he worked with Charles Brackett and they were like personal screenwriters for Lubitsch. And so his number seven tip, which is a tip from Lubitsch, let the audience add up two plus two, they'll love you for it. Um, so the, where I got this list from one of the examples that you used was just saying, Think about Christopher Nolan and you're right on track. Number eight is uh, <laughs> the voiceover aspect and doing voiceovers. Be careful not to describe what the audience already sees. Add to what they're seeing. Number nine, the event that occurs at the second act current triggers the end of the movie. And number 10, the third act must build, build, build in tempo and action. And so the last event and then that's it. Don't hang around. So that's exactly what he does. At the end of the apartment, he at, he builds up and up and up and see the momentum where you're like, okay, they're going to fall in love. Oh my God, did Baxter kill himself? No, they didn't. They're going to fall in love. They're playing cards and end. And you're like, wait, that's the ending of it. But it's like, yep, that's it. That's the movie. That's the story. And I think that's such a great mentality as a storyteller to say, okay, this is it. This is a little snapshot of life. This is what you get. He does that in the last weekend where essentially he's like, well, this is just the one weekend for this one alcoholic and what he deals through. That's it. Like that's all the story you get from me. 
Yeah, I absolutely love that. That's amazing that you went through that whole list because they're all so apparent and they're all still so applicable to films today. Like every screenwriter after they finish a screenplay should sit down and use this as like a checklist. You know, yeah. go through the entire film and just make sure that these are all checked off and they are all as clear as he makes them. You know, I think this list, and it's great that you read that because I think it, shows why Wilder is such an amazing filmmaker and an amazing writer because he trusts the audience. I think that's why his films have aged so well too. He he doesn't have to over explain things. He lets the audience think about things. He lets them like adding one and one to make two. That's a perfect example of this movie. He lets the audience question our characters. He lets our audience put together whether a character's lying and how that lying uh, is, is is telling us so much more about this character than if he just directly told us that he's lying, right? He, he's giving us so much opportunity as the viewer to think about what's going on that it makes us so much more attached to these leading characters. Like, it, it is truly incredible. I love The Apartment. I love it too. So I think, John, we're at a place where we should just talk about the 33rd Academy Awards. The 33rd Annual Awards of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. Ladies and gentlemen, the president of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, Mr. Valentine Davies. Welcome to our 33rd annual award. Tonight we are in a new theater and our presentations are being telecast over new networks. The Academy welcomes our association with the American Broadcasting Company and looks forward to friendly and fruitful cooperation in the years ahead. But essentially the Academy's purpose is the same as it always has been, namely to honor the outstanding film achievements for the year past. And now to begin the presentation of the awards, I am delighted to introduce our Master of Ceremonies, a distinguished American to whom all of us owe many thanks for many memories, Mr. Bob Hope. This is the historic occasion in which the members of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences decide which actor and actress has the best press agent. <laughs> no, it's a whole new thing. I didn't realize there was any campaigning at all going on until I saw my maid wearing a Chill Wills button. <laughs> I wouldn't say feeling has been running high, but if the Alamo doesn't win, they may do it over again, live, right here. <laughs> and there's a new feeling of buoyancy in Hollywood. Motion picture stocks are at an all-time high. Production is at its peak. Movies are doing better than ever. So what are we doing in Santa Monica with six sponsors? The 33rd Academy Awards were held on April 16, 1961 at the Santa Monica Civic Auditorium in Santa Monica, California, and the event was hosted by Bob Hope. This is the first ceremony to be aired on ABC television, which has aired the Academy Awards ever since, except for the period between 1971 and 1975 when they were aired on NBC. This was also the first year a red carpet would line the walk into the theater. So, Ben, here we have such an iconic introduction to the Oscars. You know, the red carpet show is sometimes even bigger uh, of an event to see the fashion, to see all the different wardrobes and all the crazy things that might happen, the weird interviews that sometimes happen on the red carpet. 
you know, this is such an iconic thing to add to the Academy Awards. I think it's one of the main things people think of after the Oscar or gold uh, or, or envelopes. Maybe you think of the red carpet. You know, I, I think it's a, a huge part. We don't talk too much about the fashion, the, the kind of the behind the scenes of the Academy and, and especially the red carpet. But one, what do you think about the changing of, of ties here when it comes for ABC taking over? And what do you think about adding the red carpet to the Oscars, making it glamorous? All right, well, I'll start with the red carpet part of it. It is kind of the part of the evening where I know people love it. I know that's like the biggest attraction to get like the average viewer to go uh, watch the Oscars. But I'm so that's at this point of the evening where like the hour or two before I'm just like, all right, did I get my Oscar picks right type of thing? And I, like, <laughs> it's yeah, prep time, baby. Yeah, I know it's, it's, it's for the fashion. It's for people to be like, Oh my God, there's this person, there's that person. But I'm so, I'm such a, you know, a film cinephile asshole where I'm just like, yep, just, I want to talk about the movies. Let's go to the movie part. And then as a TV person working in broadcast television, the ABC aspect to it is, it's like, oh man, it's it's insane. So it's been around since so seventy years, like pretty much they or sixty years and counting. They've been in partnership, ABC and the Academy Awards, and now we're dealing with this bullshit from ABC that they want to make the ceremony <laughs> more streamlined. They want to they cut categories. They pre-recorded it, and it it's so it, like after last year, after the last few years, at least such a bad taste because of how poorly they've run it. Um, so. It's uh, it's a start of a friendship or a relationship that isn't so great, I think, for the uh, for the Oscars because it's like two aspects of like of Hollywood and filmmaking today that I think has like almost ruined it. And it's such like a gatekeeping way of saying it, but it's these aspects of the film industry, the popularity, the celebrityness, the stardom of it that has made such like a mockery of like the Hollywood that we've been talking about now for thirty three episodes. It's like what it is today. It's such like a like a huge like disparity between the two, and so the addition of the red carpet and like ABC, I think, has really like really changed it, and not for like the good, if that makes sense. If, and if that sounds like such an asshole gatekeeping kind of statement, sorry. Oh well, it's it's for people that are not just into stories and films, and it's for people that love stars. They love reading magazines about the stars and. And knowing about their inside life and seeing someone at the Academy Awards feels like that. It feels more intimate. And especially before social media, uh, you know, we looked at the Oscars as a huge opportunity to see inside these people's lives. Seeing a famous celebrity talk to another famous celebrity and just like, oh, wow, like we never get to see that. When nowadays it's all social media based and we just see so many more things than we do. And we see so much behind these celebrities' lives. So that's why I feel like they're trying to push that envelope, not to go down that rabbit hole to talk about modern day, uh, you know, televised Oscars. But it's an interesting change. I think with this change and ABC taking over, we also lose the RKO Pantages Theater, which is an iconic theater in L.A. and, And it was basically almost the home for every Academy Awards up until this moment. And now we we're taken to Santa Monica uh, outside of Los Angeles, really, to the beach and uh, to the Civic Auditorium. So it's a, it's an interesting move. It's an interesting change. Maybe ABC will uh, let go and we'll get NBC to come back eventually for the modern day Oscars. But let's jump into the 33rd Academy Awards. 
The Gene Herschelt Humanitarian Award was given to Saul Lesser, uh, who was an American film producer known for producing Tarzan films in the 30s and 40s. Honorary awards were given to Gary Cooper for his many memorable screen performances and the international recognition he, as an individual, has gained for the motion picture industry. Another one was given to Stan Laurel for his creative pioneering in the field of cinema comedy and to Haley Mills for Pollyanna, the most outstanding juvenile performance during 1960. So to back it up to the Gary Cooper Award. So Gary Cooper was actually too ill to attend the ceremony, uh, though his condition was not publicly disclosed uh, except for his family and close friends. So at the award ceremony, James Stewart, um, who was a very close friend of Cooper, accepted the Oscar on his behalf. Stewart was actually on the verge of tears, giving a very emotional speech. She was hinting that something was like wrong with Gary Cooper. And the next day, newspaper headlines ran, uh, Gary Cooper has cancer. And then less than four weeks later, on May 13th, 1961, six days after his 60th birthday, Gary Cooper unfortunately passed away. So this was kind of a, I don't know if they gave, they did this award because insiders of insiders knew that he wasn't doing well. But this was a very emotional moment. The clip is on YouTube of uh, of James Stewart, you know, g- giving a, a really great speech about uh, Gary Cooper and the kind of man he was. Um, it's very beautiful. I would definitely recommend that. And then another, the other honorary award I want to touch on was to Haley Mills. So she was the last recipient of uh, the Juvenile Academy Award. It was retired afterwards. So from 1963 onward, juvenile actors could officially com- compete in competitive acting awards with their adult counterparts so she's the last one um of of i think it's like 16 total uh actors actresses who have gotten a juvenile award i actually might have been confusing that with egot winners i think there's 16 egot winners <laughs> not sure there i i'm not a memory bank like you are ben i can't do it. <laughs> i know it uh, <laughs> it's i mean you are a memory bank in your own ways john and that's why i appreciate you for your kevin smith knowledge your marvel <laughs> i literally was about to say i could say every movie that kevin smith's ever made for sure yeah and when kevin smith finally does win his oscar for clerks three we are going <laughs> to go buck wild <laughs> trust me yeah he'll be get best supporting actor for silent bob i can't <laughs> wait <laughs> could you imagine <laughs> <laughs> best short subject live action went to day of the painter from ezra r baker Best short subject cartoon went to Monroe, which was made by William L. Snyder. Best documentary short subject goes to Giuseppina from James Hill. Best documentary feature goes to The Horse with the Flying Tail to Larry Landsberg. The movie is about a Palmino horse nautical who won the team gold medal at the 1959 Pan American Games. It was actually released theatrically as a double bill with Swiss Family Robinson, which also came out in 1960. Best foreign language film went to The Virgin Spring from Sweden. The Virgin Spring is a rape-slash-revenge film directed by Igmar Bergman. Set in medieval Sweden, it is a tale about a father's merciless response to the rape and murder of his young daughter. Max von Sydow starred in the film, and it was also the basis for the 1972 exploitation horror film The Last House on the Left. Best special effects went to The Time Machine, visual effects by Gene Warren and Tim Barr. The Time Machine received this award for its use of time-lapse photographic effects, which show the world rapidly changing. As a time traveler, 
journeyed into the future. John, have you ever read or seen there's a more modern version of the time machine? I think I saw the one with um oh, I'm blanking on his name, but uh, it's from the early 2000s. Yeah, that one. Yeah, yeah, that that's what the one I'm talking. Name? Pierce something Pierce. What is his name? Is that Guy Pierce? Guy Pierce, right? Yeah, Guy Pierce is Was in he that, in that yeah. one? I don't remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't remember. It's probably like 2004 time machine. I yeah, think. I I remember that. I mean, it's a pretty wild story. Um but yeah, I mean, it, I I can definitely see like that movie coming out that time being like, "Whoa, that's pretty crazy." So Special effects goes to that. Kudos to them. Yeah, absolutely. And that makes me think of just how expensive it probably was to do time lapse photography. Even in the six in nineteen sixty, it still sounds like insane to think about. It's still hard to even do today. I think. Best sound goes to the Alamo, from Gordon E. Sawyer and Fred Hines. The film is thought to have been denied awards because Academy voters were alienated by an overblown publicity campaign particularly one variety ad claiming that the film's cast was praying harder for Chill Wills to win his award than the defenders of the Alamo prayed for their lives before the battle. The ad placed by Wills reportedly angered John Wayne, who took out an ad of his own, deploring Wills' tastelessness. In response to Wills' ad, claiming that all the voters were his Alamo cousins, Grasham Marks took out a small ad that simply said, Dear Mr. Wills, I am delighted to be your cousin, but I voted for Sal Mineo, Will's rival nominee for the film Exodus at the time. So, Ben, we have a funny little petty back and forth. I mean, I love a good uh, petty-natured just award sometimes. It's just no smacking involved here, but <laughs> oh just some funny, <laughs> some funny back and forth here with uh, taking out ads in the, in the newspaper or the variety magazines. Uh, really funny. Yeah, really no, I, I think, here. like, one... Yeah, we'll well. There are a few other times that John Wayne does this whole like I'm John Wayne and I and I know better than you type of shit. Yep. But uh, like Groucho Marx, just like that. That's great. <laughs> that's so good. So Classic, yeah, now yeah. that would just be like a tweet or something. But yeah, which the tweet would get like a hundred thousand like likes or whatever. <laughs> but anyways, moving on. Best costume design color went to Spartacus to Valet and Bill. Thomas of Valley that's actually their name so this is both of their only career wins but Thomas have been nominated 10 times in his career best costume design black and white went to the facts of life by Edith Head and Edward Stevenson the facts of life is a romantic comedy starring Bob Hope and Lucille Ball as married people who have an affair Written, directed, and produced by longtime Hope Associates Melvin Frank and Norman Panama, the film is more serious than many other contemporary Hope vehicles. This is Head's seventh out of eight Academy Awards, and she had last won for Sabrina in 1954. This is Stevenson's only career win of three nominations. Uh, while he was not nominated for them, he did work on Citizen Kane and It's a Wonderful Life, and he also worked with Lucille Ball on I Love Lucy, the Lucy Desi Comedy Hour, The Lucy Show, and here's Lucy. Yeah, and I uh, I think adding that aspect of that it's about married people who have an affair is a very common theme in this Oscars in terms of movies that were nominated and movies that win. There's a lot of nefarious stuff going on. Um, and we'll touch upon that in, in later movies, but this is like that first one that kind of is like, okay, here's something that's similar in vain to The Apartment. Moving on, though, to Best Art Direction Color. This one goes to Spartacus, art direction by Alexander Golitz, Eric Olbram, set decoration by Russell A. Gosman, and Julia Heron. 
best art direction black and white went to The Apartment. Art direction by Alexander Troner. Set direction by Edward G. Boyle. This is Troner and Boyle's only career Oscar win. Art director Alexandre Troner used forced perspective to create the set of a large insurance company office. The set appeared to be a very long room filled with desks and workers. However, successively smaller people and desks were placed to the back of the room, ending up with children. He designed the set of Baxter's apartment to appear smaller and shabbier than the spacious apartments that usually appeared in the films of the day. He used items from thrift stores and even some of Wilder's own furniture for the set. And Ben, I think this is a perfect example of just how detailed the set design is for this movie. I think I thought of even doing set design for the opening for this podcast because of how much the set really plays a significant portion to this movie. How homey his apartment feels while it still is a smaller apartment compared to like the never-ending nature of the offices. I the the production design is amazing in this movie. Yeah, I definitely agree. And like we, we talked about set decoration and production design with uh, how green is my Valley, but like, and and that we used, and I think this actually works too, is because that was really just like one setting in particular. And like, this does feel like it's only just the office and only his apartment and actually the Chinese restaurants. So it's really only like three sets that all the action takes place. in. so it's so well designed and, and so minimal to that effect that, uh, it really pays off, so definitely a deserved win for set decoration. Moving on to Best Cinematography Color. This one goes to Spartacus for to Russell Meddy. So there's a lot to say about this uh, Spartacus, so I'll, I'll get through this a lot, but I think this is all really fascinating stuff that, that I think a lot of people will get a lot from it. So Spartacus was filmed using 35mm Super 70 Technorama format, and then blown up to 70 millimeter film. Uh, this is a change for Stanley Kubrick, who directed the film, who preferred using the standard spherical format. This process allowed him to achieve ultra high definition and to capture large panoramic scenes. Kubrick had wanted to shoot the picture in Rome with cheap extras and resources, but Edward Mole, the president of Universal, of Universal Pictures, wanted to make an example of the film and prove that a successful epic could be made in Hollywood itself and stem the flood of runaway producers heading for Europe, which is what happened with Ben-Hur. To create the illusion of the large crowds that play such an essential role in the film, Kubrick's crew used three-channel sound equipment to record 76,000 spectators at a Michigan State Notre Dame college football game shouting, Hell, Crisis, and I'm Spartacus. And to Russell Meddy, who did actually win the Oscar himself, uh, he was a veteran with a lot of experience working in big pictures, such as Orson Welles' The Stranger and Touch of Evil and Howard Hawks bringing up Baby. Uh, and he actually complained about Kubrick's unusual, precise, and detailed instructions for the film's camera work and disagreed with Kubrick's use of light. On one occasion, he threatened to quit to Edward Mole, to which Kubrick told him, You can do your job by sitting in your chair and shutting up. I'll be the director of photography. Meddy later muted his criticism after winning the Oscar. Kubrick wanted to shoot at a slow pace for two camera setups a day, but the studio insisted that he do 32. A compromise of eight has been made, which, I, you know, hearing all that is exactly what I would expect out of Stanley Kubrick when making a big epic like Spartacus and probably why he never made like such a big epic like that again, because he probably didn't want to deal with the studio's bullshit. And the fact that he wanted to treat it so like artistically and everyone else is like, no, we have to keep this at like a really efficient pace. You know what I mean? And uh, so just hearing all that, it's like so like detailed and so precise. 
but again, like Kubrick's Kubrick, and the fact that he didn't win like more Oscars personally, at least his movies did, um, and this is one is definitely well deserved. Best cinematography, black and white, went to Sons and Lovers from Freddie Francis. This is Francis' first of two Academy Award wins in his career, and he would later win in 1989 for Glory. In the 1961 article of American Cinematographer, the magazine praised his work by stating that the film has unusual visual beauty and is marked by photographic ingenuity throughout that easily makes it one of the finest monochrome photographic achievements to come along in some time. Cinematographer John Bailey also praised his work saying, Then I saw Sons and Lovers, and I was knocked out by the poetry and visual beauty of the film. The camera work was unlike anything I had seen before in an English language movie. So I actually just want to take a second because the apartment is nominated in this category and we love that the cinematography in it, but also a movie that I think I actually like the cinematography a little bit more is psycho um, from this year. So two really uh, powerful movies to me of cinematography wise. And so now I got to watch sons and lovers. If like that beats out those two movies, you know, Absolutely. I mean, Psycho is just iconic. It's hard to compare with that. But Psycho, for me, it gets a little bit bogged down of just how great the editing is. And I'm like, am I attributing how great the editing is to the cinematography? Or, you know, that's a whole big conversation to have. (laughs) But, yeah, I always wonder. I mean, it is amazing cinematography. No way I would deny that. Uh, But, yeah, I always wonder about uh, that when I think of Psycho. Yeah, and speaking of uh, film editing... Here is Best Film Editing, which went to The Apartment to Daniel Mendel. So Jack Lemmon, he related later in life how Billy Wilder, um, he would keep uh, one of his film editors, Dwayne Harrison, who he made associate producer on the set with him at all times. And he never made a shot until they both discussed it. And as a result, he was able to shoot sparingly, cutting the film in the camera and eliminating costly setups that might never be used. So it's actually similar to what Hitchcock did with Rebecca. We talked about that a little bit, how he did a lot of his editing in camera. One, to kind of move around uh, Oselznik's like, power and control over the film, but also because he is Hitchcock and he had it all planned out in his head already so well. Best scoring of a musical picture went to Song Without End, the story of Franz Liszt from Morris Stoloff and Harry Suckman. This is Stoloff's third and final Academy Award out of 14 nominations, and he had previously won for The Cover Girl in 1944 and The Jolson Story in 1946. And this is Suckman's only career Oscar win. Best music score of a dramatic or comedy picture goes to Exodus to Ernest Gold. This is Gold's only career Oscar win, and Exodus is about the founding of the State of Israel. Best song went to Never on Sunday from Never on Sunday, music and lyrics by Manos Hatzidakis. This is the first international feature film to win Best Original Song, and since it's not a Sunday, I think there's no better time to listen to Never on Sunday. Best story and screenplay written directly for the screen goes to 
the apartment to Billy Wilder and IAL Diamond. So, as I said previously before, this is considered the 15th best screenplay all time, uh, according to the writer, Writers Guild of America. So, in total, Diamond and Wilder wrote the script for 12 films. Some feature characters engaging in endless but friendly squabbling, such as Joe and Jerry in Some Like It Hot, and Holmes and Watson in The Private Life of Sherlock Holmes. Diamond's widow claims that these characters were based on her husband's relationship with Billy Wilder. In 1980, Diamond and Wilder received the Writers Guild of America's Laurel Award for career achievement in screenwriting. Wilder had previously received the Laurel Award in 1957 for his partnership with Charles Brackett. So I guess that speaks more to Wilder than anything else. But the fact that he has like two successful careers with different screenwriters, collaborators, uh, speaks a lot to probably his collaborative process but also the people that he surrounded himself and the work that he did uh himself as well absolutely amazing i love that it shows that they draw inspiration from each other that feels so apparent when you hear characters talk to each other in this movie it just it feels like you're looking into this world you're you're not like hearing actors read a script you feels like you're secretly kind of peering into this looking glass that is inside this office building where people are naturally having these kind of these these hilarious conversations and so so worthy such an amazing script best screenplay based on material from another medium went to elmer gantry from richard brooks the film's plot overlaps with fewer than 100 pages of the novel Elmer Gantry, deleting many characters and fundamentally changing the story and fundamentally changing the character and actions of female evangelist sister Sharon Falconer as played by Simmons. In addition, a plot point from the end of the novel is incorporated into Gantry and Lulu, B- and Lulu Bain's relationship, fundamentally changing the fates of both characters. Yeah, so I um, I watched Elmer Gantry for, for this podcast because uh, it does win a few other awards. And reading that, that the that the screenplay like barely overlaps with the novel itself, which I, I think this was a Sinclair uh, Lewis novel, if I'm not mistaken. But regardless, the fact that like my biggest issue with the film was like the 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 pacing and like really the yeah it was a Sinclair Lewis novel but like the pacing of this of this film it was like it's two and a half hours and and I was saying to John like an hour and a half into the movie that's when it got interesting for me so I think like I guess I would have to read the book and know what more the differences were but I would venture to guess that if you're going to base something off of a novel and you're barely basing it off of that that's probably why like it feels from a modern perspective that the film is so hard to like engage with and get into. I would definitely recommend just to watch because it won some Academy Awards and the ending is interesting, but it's nothing in, like I would say like watch the last 50 minutes and you're going to get the same exact effect I think you would get at the beginning of the movie. Regardless, moving on to Best Supporting Actress goes to Shirley Jones for Elmer Gantry. This is Jones's only career Oscar win and nomination. Director Richard Brooks had originally fought against her being in the movie, but after seeing her first scene, told her she would win an Oscar for her performance. Jones is also most well known for Oklahoma, Carousel, The Music Man, and The Partridge Family. So I do have to say that, again, about Elmer Gantry, that Shirley Jones is like really great in this role, but she doesn't show up until like the middle like last act of the movie so you kind of like at the wait for her to show up 
but she's really good. She's uh, she gets like a lot of depth to the performance. She's like really, it's like a little twisted. She plays a prostitute, and I won't give away plot details, but she she's really integral to like how the movie ends up and playing out. Um, and she she's really good in this movie, so definitely a, a win that I would support. I mean, I guess the only other argument I could say is for Janet Lee from Psycho, but she's also like, you know, we all know Psycho. She's not in it for the last like two thirds of the movie. But uh, yeah, so definitely a really interesting <laughs> competition for Best Supporting Actress and Shirley Jones. I'm not going to take anything away from her for that. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought up our scream queen, Janet Lee. I mean, what a what an amazing performance that's still so memorable and and just iconic. I mean, there's no better word than uh, iconic. And it's interesting, too, because one of the things that made the movie so like interesting and marketable was the fact that like it is marketed as like Janet Lee in psycho and she's killed, you know, so quickly in the movie. And oh, if yeah. like, and people who are listening, if that's a spoiler for you, like you should have been watching psycho way longer, like a long, <laughs> long time ago. But like, so the fact that like, she's then also put in the best supporting actress. Like, I wonder if that was like a reaction to like audiences, because if, I guess like, let's say if the Academy was going to do their due diligence and give psycho more, nominations and they put her in in the lead actress category maybe people would have been like uh wait a second she's not in the whole movie she's not really the lead actress in this one best supporting actor went to peter ustinov for spartacus this is ustinov's first of two academy awards and he would go on to win in 1964 for top cappy so also in this category we have jack crucian uh who played dr dreyfus in the apartment uh, he was also nominated. So interesting that he gets the nomination. Uh, not that anything wrong with his performance, but you would think like maybe Fred McMurray could have gotten a nomination there. He, Crazy. How does he not get the nom over this? Yeah, it's so weird. Especially because like everything you read about like McMurray's involvement, he like th- like the role of Sheldrick was not like a typical role for him. Like he was so yeah, it sounded like he was a handsome leading. He man was like at a Disney time, right? dad, you know, type of thing. Yeah. Yeah, which I think it plays into Wilder and and the screenwriting from Diamond so perfectly is subverting your expectations, like expecting Sheldrake to be this kind of likable guy, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. It's uh, it's it feels very. I'm trying to think of like, I was talking to people who I watched this with uh, earlier, and I asked them like, well, what what actor today would this like be? And the one that we came up with was Steve Carell. I know Steve Carell has done like a few like darker kind of things and he's done like the morning show, but like imagine if Steve Carell, like from the office 40 year old virgin anchorman days then did like such a despicable type of like role, like within that same time frame, instead of like years yeah. and years passing. So that was like the closest comparison that yeah, I could see like did. a Tom Hanks do, you know, America's dad, you know, coming in and you're like, oh, God. And, and you know, he did. He just did it in he Elvis, did it Elvis. Year, which is exactly playing this like, you know, mustache twirling villain. Man, does he does he have a chance to uh, get best supporting actor early, early nomination prediction from us? He'll be nominated. He yeah. won't win, though. Not a chance. Yeah. We'll see. It, it, it'll be interesting year. Regardless, moving on to best actress. This one went to. Elizabeth Taylor for Butterfield 8. This is Taylor's fourth nomination, but her first Academy Award win. Butterfield 8 is an, is an American drama film which is directed by Daniel Mann. The film is based on a 1935 novel of the same name by John O'Hara. 
which is loosely based upon the life of a socialite and flapper star faithful whose unsolved death in 1931 became a tabloid sensation. So to talk a little bit more about Taylor herself, she was presented the Jean Herschel Humanitarian Award at the 65th Academy Awards uh, for her bold commitment to the war on AIDS. Taylor accepted this honor. 5,000 people were diagnosed of HIV every day around the globe. So that was you know, almost three decades ago at that point. And Elizabeth Taylor is remembered as one of the last major stars to have come out of the old Hollywood studio system, but she became one of the loudest, most high-profile voice voices talking about AIDS long before most even understood the disease. So a lot of her social work, she's such an icon. I mean, she is beautiful. She is one of the most beautiful actresses to come through Hollywood, and she her humanitarian you know, work, I think, like transcends her work in Hollywood. But to talk about Butterfield 8, uh, John, have you seen Butterfield 8 at all? No, I haven't. So I watched it for this movie. It, it's like an hour 40. It was a little, it was, I think it's on HBO Max right now. Um, it is not a great movie. I'll have to say that. And it's also about infidelity. It's about a woman kind of, she's like, they don't directly call her a prostitute, but there's definitely some sort of aspects to that but it's never directly said and she you know there, there's a lot in that movie and she's fine i think there are like two keen scenes in that movie where a lot of that like that we see in the apartment with uh fran's character with mclean's character that kind of feels in the same vein but i think that taylor gives more of a dramatic delivery and a little bit more peek behind the curtain than what like Wilder and Diamond give to Fran's character. So I can understand like, hey, here's Elizabeth Taylor. She's extremely popular. This is her fourth nomination. Like, let's give her the win type of thing. Um, so Butterfield 8, not like the best movie. I can, John, I can show you like the two scenes and be like, okay, I understand like why she would win for that. So it could be one of those politics wins, which I think is a common thing we'll see in the next category for best actor. Yeah, it seems like it's a it's a big, you know, Oscar performance, much louder and in your face, and, and it kind of fits the bill for the Academy. Best actor went to Burt Lancaster for Elmer Gantry. This is Lancaster's only career Oscar win out of four nominations. He was nominated for From Here to Eternity, Birdman of Alcatraz, and Atlantic City. Lancaster is initially known for playing tough guys with a tender heart. Burt Lancaster went on to achieve success with more complex and challenging roles over a 45-year career. While his Academy career ended, in the 1980s he appeared in some iconic films such as Local Hero from 1983 and Field of Dreams from 1989. So we've seen Burt Lancaster come up a couple times. I can't wait to see Birdman of Alcatraz in a couple years here and Atlantic City in the 80s. But we also have to mention Jack Lemmon, our lovely leading goofball in the apartment. Ben, should have this gone to Burt Lancaster? I know you've seen Elmer Gantry. Tell me, is it worthy? Yeah, so um, so watch Elmer Gantry for this because I was a little like, hey, uh, Jack, why didn't Jack Lemmon you know, get this award? I mean, Jack Lemmon is <laughs> you know, fantastic, but we talk about the politics thing. Lemon had won a few years before for Mr. Roberts uh, in as a best supporting actor role. Lancaster had yet to win. Lancaster, um, he was a very prolific producer. He hecked in 
Hill Lancaster Productions. I mean, they produced Marty together. So, like, Lancaster has been, like, this, um, this like, behind-the-scenes person as well as being on screen. So it feels like, okay, like, we'll give him the Oscar. And for Elmer Gantry, it's not, like, he doesn't give a bad performance. I don't think the movie is as strong. And I think, like, for him, he gives such an over-the-top performance versus, like, what we saw, like, in From Here to Eternity and he you know it's very like from in from from here to eternity we said oh this feels like a steve rogers captain america type of thing like Bert, that's who burt lancaster would be if you put him in the avengers type of thing and this movie he is so far away from like that type of character he is so eccentric he's there's a lot of energy he has this like crazy smile throughout his hair is kind of wild he's his preacher con man uh, it's it's a very you know big like big bold role for him to take on so i can understand again like for voters to see that to see burt lancaster you know going all over the place for this movie like for why he would win but i think the subtlety and like the heart that jack lemon gives into the apartment is so it's like much more compelling versus what lancaster gives in elmer gantry but i also can understand the politics aspect of uh of that win for him such a soft, tender, like emotional role too. That is revealing and funny and and just goofy and and has so much heart there. It's it's hard not to kind of push push all the chips onto Jack Lemon's plate. Um, but I know we'll see him soon in the future, and uh, maybe he'll win again or win in the future. Maybe. So, best director goes to Billy Wilder for The Apartment. Billy Wilder won his first Academy Award for The Lost Weekend in 1945 at the 18th Academy Awards, but he had been nominated in 1940 for Best Writing of a Screenplay for Ninochka. Wilder has received 21 nominations at the Academy Awards, winning 6, 13 nominations for his screenwriting, and 8 for his direction. He even garnered Lifetime Achievement Awards, including the Urban G. Thalberg Memorial Award in 1988, which... Outside, I think, of the Humanitarian Award uh, is probably the highest honor like a filmmaker could get from the Oscars um, as like an honorary award. Billy Wilder, he once said, an audience is never wrong. An individual member of it may be an imbecile, but 1,000 imbeciles together in the dark. That is critical genius. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. What a fucking line. Oh, man. Just reading some of the lines from that book I was talking about with... Uh, Cameron Crowe that he wrote oh Wilder seemed like the old grandpa that you could just get the funniest fucking shit out of <laughs> <laughs> he just seemed like the typical great just mensch Jewish grandfather so so knowledgeable yeah. too and just like and being able to present it so clearly and, and while still having such like a you know educated perspective on everything when it comes to, to film yeah Wilder was a genius I think uh, I wish I wrote this down but he has like four films that are um that the, like the library of congress has like preserved or, or something even higher than that and he it's like that's the second most versus like john ford has five so wilder is this like hollywood director that like we obviously give him his due but i think we don't really like truly appreciate him for what he is and i think it's just because he's so diverse in like his genres comedies dramas film noirs it's all over the place so definitely deserved win. But one other thing I wanted to point out is another nominee from that year, which is Alfred Hitchcock for Psycho. So this is Hitchcock's fifth and final 
Academy nomination, uh, but he would later win the Thalberg Award in 68. But again, like, I'm not upset that Wilder won for the apartment this year. It's kind of unfortunate that Psycho kind of ran into it. But again, like, like, wh- like where's the love for Psycho? Should should have been there. Like, no, Anthony um, Perkins nominated for that. Like, he was so good. So good in that movie. Should have gotten, like, a supporting actor nom, I think. But that's revisionist history if I, you know whatever the fucking term is psycho should have gotten more <laughs> i mean we have said it multiple times on this podcast hitchcock deserves more recognition and praise i mean he was pushing the boundary i think you know while Hitch, like psycho is one of the biggest if not the i think most profitable film of the year he's he's just not everyone's cup of tea and especially when it comes to the academy i mean that's a it's a it's a it's very politics. much a horror film a psychological thriller yeah and it's it's a genre that they're they're not messing around with too much and it's a genre we've almost barely seen when it comes to you know, the oscars and the academy awards if you're interested uh, to learn some more about that check out our halloween episode of worthy our halloween special or our episode about rebecca the 1940 best picture winner. yes even better that's an even better reference thanks ben moving on to the best motion picture of 1960. The nominees were The Sundowners, Sons and Lovers, Elmer Gantry, The Alamo, and the winner, The Apartment by Billy Wilder. The Apartment was the last black and white movie to win Best Picture at the Academy Awards until The Artist in 2011. Schindler's List in 1993, which won in 1994, was not completely black and white as some scenes were in color, like the girl in the red coat and the candle at the very beginning of the film. For this film, Billy Wilder became the first person to win the Academy Award for Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Screenplay. This was also the first film to win Best Picture at the Academy Awards and BAFTA Awards and Best Picture Musical or Comedy at the Golden Globes. So, Ben... We've talked so much about this movie. The only thing I want to talk about outside of this uh, category, the only other film I've seen outside of The Apartment in uh, the best motion pictures here is The Alamo. I'm a, a big John Wayne fan when it comes to not his politics and his quotes, but a uh, big fan of his films, some of the great uh, characters he's played, some of the iconic films that he's been in. And I saw that uh, The Alamo was the first film that he was credited as directing. I was really curious about that. You know, I, I love following actors. My favorite, probably currently, actor-director Ben Affleck, and I love seeing their kind of progression, how they bring uh, their kind of unique take into directing after being a very successful actor. And I got to say, I was pretty let down with The Alamo. It's a very hoorah Americana film, and it, it shows its its uh, age a lot. You know, it ha- doesn't have the most exciting, dynamic uh, war footage when it comes to the fighting and battle scenes you know there's there's some charming moments I think the best part of the whole movie is the color the costume designing and and some of the technicolor use it was very vibrant and fun but compared to the apartment not a chance I think the apartment is absolutely wonderful Ben but you tell me your your final thoughts here yeah I, I think that the apartment stands out again I think the only competition that I felt was deserved was Psycho, but Psycho's not going to be the best picture winner, unfortunately. So the apartment, um, it, it's still like the apartment. I would still give the win to no matter what. So I, 
I love this movie. I think it's fascinating that it has three of the five parts of winning the big five awards. So it wins for picture director screenplay and it had nominations and probably should have been deserved wins for lemon and McLean, but they got beat out um, because of the politics and popularity contest. I don't know if that's the best way to phrase it, but um, yeah, the, the, the apartment is such a fantastic movie. And, and I think that I, I just don't think there's enough like great things to say about it. I, I think I would, be like i like we i think we had a great conversation about it but i feel like we also like could have done more we could have been talking about this movie for like hours and hours on end about it like that's there's so much depth to it the screenplay is one of the best ones i think we have encountered it's so great and it's so wise a word that to take from the screenplay that is used constantly uh yeah this movie deserves all the awards and more but let's get into some stats and figures about the film so currently the film has a 94 percent rating on rotten tomatoes with an average rating of 8.8 top critics percentage is a 92 with an average rating of an 8.9 audiences give it a 94 and they give it an average rating of 4.4 which is out of five imdb gives it an 8.3 that 8.3 i think has to be if i uh, let me do a little little calculations right here uh, so to say but that 8.3 is the second highest out of all the movies we've watched so far behind Casablanca, which is an 8.5 and it edges out all about Eve at an 8.2. So we're talking about some like a really good movie right here. Metacritic gives it a 94. And again, it won five Academy Awards out of 10 nominations. So um, John has hidden his ranking, uh, his his <laughs> rating for this movie. So. Uh, I'm. I don't know what John's about to give this movie. I know that he really liked this movie, but John, you you have the floor. You have the mic. You give me your rating for the apartment. So I uh, left this blank, and I left this blank uh, in particular. Not only do I think the apartment is my favorite film that we've watched out of any of the best picture winners, I think the apartment is a perfect film. And it is my first and our first 100 What? What? <laughs> what? Okay. What? I'm the I'm the guy that goes crazy about the ratings. You're giving this a 100? I mean, I'm not going to like argue with... Man, now I feel shitty about my score. Okay, give me why. So you just think it's perfect. I, I, think, I think the apartment's perfect. Okay. I think every line is here for a reason. I think... Every character and every actor that delivers their performance is so compelling and and just interesting. I think when I talked about my girlfriend experiencing this, this is the first film that she like begged me not to watch without her, that, that I needed to pause every time she left the room. It showed just how much this movie is not only just compelling, but it makes you care so much about these characters. And it just, it's a ride. And it, exactly the way you described it uh, from Wilder's you know points on screenwriting is that it's just non-stop this film does grab you by the throat and it's relatable and it's funny and I always think my favorite movies and I mentioned this earlier my favorite movies are always 
complex and not their story, but they're complex in their tone and, and their genre. Uh, like one of my favorite films, it's a Shawshank Redemption. And I think it's hard to narrow down what kind of film that is. Is it a drama? There's a lot of hilarious moments in that. Is it, uh, you know, where do we kind of classify and define it as? And it's a story that I think anyone can relate to and that anyone can find their own personal story and, and, and find their own uh, relatable moments to. And I think the apartment is the same exact way. You know, I've never had someone cheat on me. I've never cheated on someone else. But we all are terrified of that. We all have worked for companies that we don't like and that we're kind of stuck in and we wish we could go beyond. You know, I've worked at the same corporate company for five years now and I'm pulling my hair out trying to like find something else and something that's different. And this movie hit home to me in that really personal level so much that it, it just it hit me more in my heart than I think I really expected. And, you know, looking at the poster for this film, it just shows like a classic stereotypical, you know, three characters or three main characters in the film in the shape of like a key, right? They're all like stuck in this shape of a key for the apartment. And just looking off the poster, I just thought about how, okay, this is going to be a screwball comedy, a romantic, you know, you know, comedy where you know exactly what's going to happen. But I couldn't have been more wrong. It was so compelling and twisting and turning. And I adore The Apartment. I do think it's a perfect film. And it is my first 100. Well, that is... I'm so... Well, that's great to hear. (laughs) Um, I'm like kind of at a loss for words because I feel like an asshole for putting a 94 down (laughs) for this movie. Because like I really don't... Because I really was trying to find like what's like the fatal flaw with this movie and there's really not like a fatal flaw. Like, I don't know. What, what, what can I take away? Like not like not much. There's nothing like really to critique it on. I like to say that like there's one aspect that like brings it down by six points. Like I really, oh man, I really can't. So I'm like tempted <laughs> to like move it up because now I'm thinking about like the other movies I've ranked and now I'm like, oh man, fuck it. All right. You know what? I'm doing it. I'm giving it the same <laughs> rating I, I gave Casablanca, which is a 97. So no, there you the, go. And also Bridge on the River. Yeah, Kwai. and Bridge on the River Kwai. To me, like the like the, it falls in that same level of like Hollywood, like just you know, cla- like classic, like just real powerhouse kind of film. Like, like to me, like w- the four highest rated movies I have are The Apartment, Bridge on the River Kwai, Casablanca, and then On the Waterfront. I have a 99. Although that movie to me, I think is just like a one, like a incredibly perfect movie. So like they, those are, these are just four classics and like, I, like you've hit it. So, you know, with how you rated it and what you're saying about it, it's like pretty much like a nearly, I guess for me to say it's nearly perfect. You're saying it's perfect, which is like, it, it is, it's so deservedly. So the screenplay is fantastic. The acting is, is fantastic. I, I really can't find a flaw. So it like maybe take out one minute of it. There's maybe one minute of the film that would like slowed it down by a second. So <laughs> I don't even know what that really means, but this movie is uh <laughs> yeah, it's great. So I'll give it a 97. John, you gave it a 100. It, this, it's a great movie. So we, I implore people to go see it. Um, I'm happy. I've gotten people to see it as well. Like as a process of like researching and, and preparing for this podcast. Uh, so yeah, so re- really great. So John, your average rating right now, out of the 33 films is a 72.666667 and I am a 75.575757 58 uh, <laughs> is how that all 
averages out. So we're we're still like in that seventies range because of stinkers like around the world and and GG for me at least. Um, but this movie definitely brings up the averages. It brings up the quality. It sets the standard for the sixties and and modern filmmaking moving forward. Um, I feel like it's kind of pointless to ask this question, but John, let's answer the main crux of this of the argument of doing this podcast, which is, is the apartment worthy of the best picture award of 1960? Of course, of course it is. But, you know, since we've just absolutely adored this film and talked so much about it, I'm curious if you had to pick, not in terms of what you like more, but what's more worthy for 1960, the apartment or psycho, even though psycho wasn't nominated. Uh, I still think I'm very quick finger trigger but i'm gonna say the apartment still i think psycho i love psycho psycho for me is a one of like my favorite films uh it was a early formative film for my movie watching and and film love but there's a lot of great hitchcock films that i think kind of overtake it i still love psycho for what it is i love hitchcock but i think like my appreciation for like Wilder has grown more and more and I think that's it's more relatable. I don't think I can relate to Psycho at a personal level. It's just like so fringe and it's so you know so like fantastical that it that's what makes it such a great movie to watch, but this is has such a, a heart to it that I don't think is really matched by many others. Like Marty has like a very similar heart in its vein, but this like takes it a step forward. And again, like it sets it sets up so much for the future and it, and it critiques so much about America and, and capitalism and in such subtle ways without even talking about it. And it, it hits it on the, the head on the nail. So I, I love this movie. So, yeah, uh, it's de- definitely worthy to me in all regards. So I think that's it for our discussion on the apartment. John, is there any anything else that we need to hit on? Shut up and deal. <laughs> Just shut up and deal. Well, thank you to listening to this episode of Worthy. I'm Ben. And I'm John. And, and this, this is, is Worthy. I know how you feel, Miss Kubelik. You think it's the end of the world, but it's not. I went through exactly the same thing myself. You did? Well, maybe not exactly the same. I tried to do it with a gun. Over a girl? The worst than that. It was the wife of my best friend. And I was mad about it. But I knew it was hopeless, and I decided to end it all. I went to a pawn shop and I bought a 45 automatic and I drove up to Eaton Park. You know Cincinnati? No, I don't. Well, anyway, I parked the car and I loaded that gun. You read in the papers all the time that people shoot themselves. Believe me, it's not that easy. I mean, how do you do it? Here? 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 You know where I finally shot myself? Where? Here. In the knee? While I was sitting there trying to make up my mind, a cop stuck his head in the car because I was illegally parked and I tried to hide the gun under the seat and it went off. That's terrible. It was a year before I could bend the knee. But I got over the girl in three weeks. Still lives in Cincinnati. Has four kids and gained 20 pounds. Sends me a fruitcake every Christmas. Are you just making this up to make me feel better? Of course not. Here's the fruitcake. Did you see my knee? No, thank you. That was in the office, and I get the wrong idea how I found out. Hey, <laughs> let him. Look, I'm going to cook dinner for us tonight. You have the fruitcake for dessert. You just sit there and rest. You've done enough for today. Yes, nurse. Thanks for listening to Worthy. 
a breakdown of every Best Picture winner from past to present. Listen to us wherever you get your podcasts. Check us out on Instagram at Worthy Podcast, on Twitter at Worthy Pod, and on Facebook at Worthy Podcast. Any inquiries can be submitted to worthysubmissions at gmail.com. That's worthysubmissions at gmail.com.